You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 182 of the Common Descent Podcast, podcast where we talk about Earth history, evolution, paleontology, and stuff like that. This episode is about camouflage. Camouflage. This is our first episode of the new year. Yeah, we're in a brand new year. Also, uh, I'm sick, and that's why I sound the way I did. I think my hello, Will, was a little bit... (laughs) off there (laughs) hello will (laughs) so we'll see how i sound by the end of this intro yeah new year new you this is this is the this is the voice for 2024 this is what i'm gonna sound like for the whole year (laughs) welcome back everybody welcome back hope you all had a wonderful holidays new year winter break whatever it was hope you enjoyed hope you're safe and sound and it all went well welcome to 2024 we're gonna start it off with a topic camouflage camouflage is A fact of nature that many of us are familiar with just by glancing out at at any picture of an animal, very many animals have some sort of features to blend in or avoid being seen or detected or noticed. This is kind of just a given for a lot of things, but it is extremely complex. There are various forms, some which kind of overlap and some which somewhat defy hard definition as to where they fall on the graph of camouflage and other traits. This is one of those topics that doesn't fit neatly in its box. No. So we will discuss what it means to be camouflage. What's the point? What are some examples of camouflage and how they aid that organism in surviving and going unnoticed? We'll talk about evidence in the fossil record because we do indeed have camouflaged fossil animals. And then we'll talk a bit about some of the evolutionary trends. So we will go through. This is going to be one of those, again, major flyby because there, <laughs> we could do a camouflage episode on a single group of animals. Oh, sure. Like if we just chose one, like butterflies, there would be enough to just talk about camouflage and butterflies. So as always, if we don't get to your favorite, let us know and you can always request more. Speaking of requests, this topic, as all of our topics are, was requested This was asked for by Jonathan, Jesse, Tony, and Scott. Thanks, everybody. So thank you for that. As a reminder, uh, we take requests now on the form on our website, which you can find a link to down in the episode description. Absolutely. So check that out. And before we get into the main episode, let's knock out some quick brand new year announcements. First and foremost, now that we're in the new year, that means the old year is done. So our end of the year Q&A is out and ready to be listened to. Yeah, if you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. A massive answer marathon. Uh, This was our longest end of the year Q&A so far. Yep, yep. It was tons of fun. We got really interesting questions. So go take a listen and, you know, think of what your question will be for the next end of the year (laughs) Q&A. Also here at the beginning of the year, we are coming up on our anniversary of the podcast. And we will be having an anniversary live stream at the end of the month on January 28th, 2 o'clock Eastern Time. And that is where we will be talking a bit about, you know, the the past year, our year coming up and plans and ideas for the podcast, as well as announcing the winners of our Patreon giveaway, who will be winning some goodies from 
some of the benefits of our Patreon tiers with the top winner getting all of them all together. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. This will be our seven-year anniversary live stream. The live stream is on YouTube. It is open to anybody to join. You'll be able to be in the chat, ask us questions along the way. Uh, It's very exciting. And yes, we're very excited to finally get to our Patreon giveaway. We've been talking about it for half a year now since the summer, (laughs) uh, since we hit our milestone of 500 patrons. So if you're a patron and you were a patron before the new, the the last year officially ended, tune into the live stream uh, because you have a chance of winning some cool prizes. Yes. And if you aren't on live stream, we'll send you a message. But if, you know, if you want to see your name (laughs) shouted out, Tune in the live stream. <laughs> it will also be archived later, so you can go back and rewatch it. So everybody and gets pretend to enjoy. you can pretend like it's in the, it's at real time. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, speaking of the holidays, we got some mail recently because we have a physical mail address that you can send stuff to. People like to send us cards and messages and goodies, and we got some for the holidays. We got a book from Emily. Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. Very exciting. Yes, so I'll be interested to see what that's all about. And we got a dino Christmas card from Susanna. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate getting goodies for any time of the year, really. Yes. Uh, these these are, you know, well, we'll theme these as holiday presents. They're, they're Christmas flavored. But people are welcome to send us things any time of the year. If you'd like to send us some sort of physical goodie, you can find our mailing address on our website. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and move on to the first official section of the podcast, the news. Every episode, we like to gather some recently published science articles and news in the fields of paleontology and earth science and evolution, just to keep us all up to date on what's going on and what's new. David, what's new in the new year? For our first news of the new year... I have a, a new study here about uh, understanding how trilobites rolled up. Ooh, cool. This is pretty cool. This is research by Sarah Loso et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And in the blog post after this episode, we will put a link to the press release about this research, which is on Eureka Alert via Harvard University. Trilobites. So trilobites, of course, the extremely abundant oceanic arthropods of the Paleozoic are famous for many things, but one of the things that they are notable for being having been able to do is what is called enrollment. This is a behavior that a bunch of different animals exhibit where they roll up into a ball. Yeah. Uh, tons of animals do this. Uh, we have arthropods today like pill bugs. There are certain millipedes that do this. Armadillos do this. The ability to curl up into a ball, usually for some sort of defensive strategy. Yeah, a ball is a really good structure to to keep things out. Yeah, and it keeps all the soft, swishy, vulnerable stuff on the inside, and it can protect from predators or the environment. Uh, I think some animals will use it to prevent drying out. It's a, a very useful defensive strategy. Trilobites are known to have done this. We know that trilobites did this because we have a bunch of trilobite fossils preserved in the rolled up position. We have found fossils of enrolled trilobites. Because trilobite exoskeletons, the hard outer surface of the body, preserves really well, we also have a pretty good idea of what the various pieces of the back of the trilobite were doing when trilobites were rolled up, sort of how the parts moved around. Yeah. But... We have very little evidence of the underside of trilobites. 
the underside, the belly of trilobites is much softer and therefore preserves much more rarely. So we don't know very much about if they had special adaptations on the belly to help them roll themselves into a ball. It's kind of crazy that we we have good preservation of their shield, but not what it was protecting. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Soft tissue in trilobites is very rare. There are only, I think the press release has a stat in it that's like, there are something like 20,000 identified species of trilobites and like three dozen of them have preserved soft tissue. Wow. Very unusual. Typically when we do get soft tissue, it's bits and pieces and it's often flattened like we think of with like Burgess shale fossils, which means that we don't get a lot of three-dimensional information about what structures were doing down there. This study uh, changes that. These researchers examined a collection of trilobites from a, a famous site called the Walcott Rust Quarry in New York. These fossils are from the Ordovician period. They're between 462 and 451 million years old. This site preserves a bunch of fossils that uh, seem to have been buried in a sediment flow, so an underwater mudslide of some kind, that buried them quickly and has allowed for excellent preservation of soft tissues in three dimensions. Previous research has reported among these soft tissues legs and antennae (laughs) of the trilobites, which is very cool. This study re-examines a bunch of these fossil specimens to see what evidence they can find within the preserved soft tissues of the underside of the trilobites. And even better, many of these trilobites are rolled up. <laughs> nice. Uh, the, the authors, I think, actually make the note somewhere in here that it may very well be that they were caught in this mudslide of some kind and rolled up to protect themselves. I was wondering that, that talking about just fossilized, rolled up trilobites. It's like, were you trying to avoid... What ended up fossilizing you? Yes. And in this case, maybe. (laughs) Not only do we have rolled up trilobites with 3D preserved soft tissues of the underside, we have them in various different stages of enrollment. Oh. Partially rolled up, fully rolled up, not rolled up, and so on. So we can really get a sense of what are the pieces doing during the enrollment process. That's really cool. They found that there do, in fact, appear to be some special adaptations in the underbelly to help them roll up. Specifically, adaptations in the plates along the belly and the legs. Being arthropods, of course, trilobites are covered in plates. The plating along the belly are called sternites. Uh, They are plates, even though they're softer Mm -hmm. tissue than what we think of as sort of the stuff on their back. So they have these sort of like adjacent plating down the belly. The researchers noted that when they roll up, the front of each of these sternites, each of these plates, dips down and slides past the next one. Oh, wow. The press release described it like window blinds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that they can actually slide together. This appears to be facilitated by the presence of flexible membranes in the underbelly that allows the plates to move. And they noted that the base of the leg, so the part of the legs that attaches to the actual body, the part of the leg called the protopodites, are not... They noted, I think this was in the press release where they said, often artists will draw the base of the legs as being sort of square or rounded, But in these trilobites they looked at, the base of the legs is actually wedge-shaped. Oh. They're triangular so that when they roll up, they fit together, like, uh, again, to borrow how the press release put it, like slices of pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So there are physical adaptations in both the plates along the belly and the shape of the leg bases that allow trilobites to roll up effectively. Very cool. Even cooler is that the researchers compared this with modern day arthropods that do the same sort of behavior and found that very similar structures are found in pill bugs and in pill millipedes, which are millipedes that do the same sort of thing. So this appears to be, these are adaptations that seem to have shown up convergently in multiple different lineages, providing the ability for these arthropods to roll themselves up. I always love this kind of conversion evolution where the problem you're trying to solve is one of geometry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a physics issue or, or a maths issue. Is that how do you make your body into a circle, into a spheroid? So it makes sense that you would come across similar solutions to it because you're all trying to make roughly the same shape out of a kind of similar body. Yeah, and you're working from similar pieces. Yes. They also noted that there are some similarities between the trilobite underbelly and modern-day horseshoe crabs. Oh. Now, horseshoe crabs don't quite roll up that same way. But they can kind of fold themselves. Yes, which, the authors point out, might also be helpful for feeding. Oh, yeah. It helps them to use their appendages during feeding. They can kind of curl over a thing. So they point out that these adaptations in trilobites may not just be about efficient rolling up, but could also be helping them with feeding. And yeah. it could be multiple selective pressures that allowed for this. Oh, that makes tons of sense. Because not only would that like let you bring all your legs into play because you're bringing them all together, but also now no one can steal your food, which is like yes. you've, you've trapped it inside yourself so you can finish eating without being bothered. Yeah. Also, I assume it would help you with crushing stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bringing all the pieces close together. Actually imparting some pressure on it. Yeah. So they point out that this this research allows us to this this allows us to make the most accurate models of how trilobites folded themselves up that we've had ever had so far. That's mechanical insights into past organisms just make me very happy. That's so cool. Th- this is a very cool study. So remember, for the next end of the year Q&A, when you ask what our favorite news was, <laughs> uh, so far, this one. Yes, yes. No, this is the front runner right now. The best best news of the year so far. <laughs> well, let's see what its competition is. My first bit of news is about a study that used octopus DNA to try to interpret the state of polar ice sheets and the South Pole through time. Whoa. That yeah. sounds very sci-fi. Yes, it, it feels that way. And then as soon as you get into it, you go, oh, yeah, no, this makes sense. It's I love it. I can't it. wait. This is research by Sally Lau et al. in Science, and the article is a press release by Ism Ahmed in phys.org. So the West Antarctic Ice Sheet on the South Pole is the focus of this study. It is a giant sheet of ice, as its name suggests, and... It has been there in some form or another for the last 30 million years, but it has fluctuated and it has receded and come back in different times. And currently right now, we're very worried about its condition because we're hitting a conditions that might push it to a point of what they called no return, irreversible collapse, basically. And we might lose it either for a time or for a very, 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 you know, basically for, in our sense, for good. 
Yeah, scientists have been monitoring the status of the Antarctic ice sheets, and you'll hear this concept of the point of no return or the tipping point of if it collapses or melts beyond a certain amount, it may then have a domino effect and essentially cascade and collapse even further. As it adds more water into the ocean, fresh water into the ocean, it can cause a feedback loop that will cause more ice to be lost, which will add more water, which will lose more ice, so on and so forth. The researchers were wanting to try to get a grasp on what that tipping point really might be. Uh, The United Nations Paris Agreement put it at 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius as the the mitigating scenario for like what we need to be concerned for and they're trying to f- trying to figure out is that accurate compared to what the ice sheets have done in the past right so so this is 1.5 to 2 degrees of change yes from our sort of chosen baseline and if you've heard the 2 degrees mm-hmm. uh, sort of marker that this is this is where that comes from exactly so they wanted to get some knowledge about the history of the ice sheet during especially similarly warm times in the past because we've had Mm -hmm. times uh, where things were warm or somewhat comparable to some of the temperatures we're dealing in some of the climate shifts that we're dealing with now and getting an idea of what the sheets did during those times could give us a better resolution to what to look for today particularly they wanted to look at the last interglacial zone so you know the the last period between quote-unquote ice ages the warm period where sea levels were five to 10 meters higher and the global average temperature was 0.5 to 1.5 warmer than pre-industrial temperatures. So very similar to the range we're looking at for today's conditions Mm -hmm. to get an idea of that time span. They looked at the Turquette's octopus, which is a Antarctic octopus. It's circum Antarctic. So it's found all around the continent in the ocean, but it is often limited and, its ranges are affected by the circumpolar uh, sea currents. So they can't always just be everywhere because the currents will break apart their communities, so forth. This is a fairly small octopus, about half a foot, 15 centimeters, and is very useful because a lot of research has been done. So we already have a pretty good grasp on it as an organism. You know, they know what its lifespan is like. They said it's roughly 12 year lifespan, which is fairly long for a cephalopod and that previous research has determined they emerged in the fossil record about four million years ago so they were in this region during the whole time that we're wanting to learn about they also have a reproductive strategy that is helpful because they lay a few relatively large eggs and the parents guard them which is common for octopus but it prevents them from traveling very far. So they end up being somewhat more isolated than their populations. So looking at what their population distribution or evidence of it might give us an idea of when they were able to travel more freely and when they weren't based on what the ice sheet was doing. So they looked at the DNA of 96 samples left in museum storage for the past 33 years, which I always love when things in collection get used for cool new research. Yep, that's just the the trilobite research is like that. Yep, yep. And they looked through patterns of the genome for suggestions of change in the population. And they found historic signals. So noted moments, it seems, of gene flow between the populations that suggest they were breeding much more freely across their range and between populations than typically throughout their history. Mm -hmm. So there are these moments of 
increased interbreeding among the octopus, which signals a more ice-free South Pole and cor allowing corridors to open up between the basins where they'd be hanging out. They found evidence for two separate points that seem to indicate this increased gene flow and more free movement of the octopus. First was in the mid-Pliocene, three to three and a half million years ago, which is one that scientists were already confident about. Uh, like, we've suspected that that had happened based on other evidence, but this supports it. And then the last time they found was the last interglacial period, about 125,000 years ago, which falls within the range that they were looking at to see for comparisons to today's temperatures. So this gives some support for ice sheet collapses during those times, one of which would have been happening during temperatures within and potentially even below the range we deemed as our concerned temperature rise for today. That the tipping point might be even lower than we thought it was based off of this. Right, so there, there's evidence for a partial, at least, collapse of this ice sheet during a past time period with similar temperatures. Yes, and some of which would actually put it at lower temperatures than we currently are, are considering based off of the, the Paris Agreement. Yep. If this holds up. They said there's still a number of questions that remain to be answered. Whether the past ice sheet collapse was indeed caused by rising temperatures is not guaranteed by this evidence. Right. There could be other factors exactly. that were influencing it. There could be other ocean currents changing, other factors of the planet that could have caused it. So we can't just say for sure this is evidence that this is the temperature we need to worry about. There could have been other things going on back then. Just that it did indeed seem to have a collapse during a time with temperatures that we are closely approaching. Mm -hmm. They also noted that it's not clear what the rate of collapse would have been and sea level right. rise would have been. Whether it could have been fairly quick or over the course of a millennia or with jumps. So they don't know what that collapse looked like for sure and what that could mean for, for us to expect or... You know, I don't expect sounds much more ominous, but, you know, potentially be <laughs> on the... Predict. To predict. To be on the lookout for with our co today's conditions. Yeah. From here, it seems to me that it would be useful to now see if we could get ancient ocean chemistry mm -hmm. data or uh, information from marine plankton and the fossil record to see if we can get a higher resolution understanding of what changes were happening during this time. Yeah. Did other Arctic organisms show this same pattern or are they... Not is it really just these octopus that are showing it? I'd be very interested to see the the, the future research for this and what the responses are to this, because uh, it's something that could be very important for how we respond to things in the here and now. Indeed. Well, sticking with our apparent theme of marine invertebrates, I've got another bit of news that is uh, this is another news about preserved soft tissues in fossil marine arthropods this time uh it's a crab Ooh, a crab with soft tissues which uh, sets some records uh, which is always fun to see this is research published in paleontologia electronica by adele klopmaker et al and we will link to the blog post uh, another press release from phys.org by rebecca johnson of the university of alabama in tuscaloosa we did a whole episode about crabs, episode 117, and we talked about how what we call crabs, there's a lot of different things that we call crabs. 
The crab in question here is a brachyurine decapod, which is to say uh, it's a crab. Yeah. It's what you think of when you think of a crab. Decapods is the group that includes crabs, lobsters, shrimps, brachyura, short-tailed crabs. This is sort of your classic image of a crab. Yeah. This fossil crab comes from a late Cretaceous fossil site in South Dakota, dating to around 75 million years ago. It is quite well-preserved in some ways. The authors were able to identify the genus of the crab. It is in a genus called Cicrotinella, but they were not able to identify it to species because the shell of the crab is not actually preserved well enough to have the identifiable features that you would need. Yes. However, the interior tissues are preserved unusually well. The authors noted early on, it seems, that they could see preserved gills visible through a broken piece of the exoskeleton. They were able to observe four gills. Uh, They described them as phylobranchiate gills, which is the kind of gills that you see in crabs like this. The sort of gills made of these lamellae, these sheets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Noticing this incredible soft tissue preservation of gills, they micro-CT scanned the fossil to look for more. They did not find more preserved gills, but they did find a bunch of traces of uh, the digestive tract. Ooh. They found traces of preserved tissues of the esophagus, the foregut, parts of the stomach, uh, possible muscles of the stomach, and the mandibles. Ooh, cool. These do not seem to be particularly exceptional in their general arrangement and morphology. They said that they're, they look very similar to what we see in modern crabs, which isn't terribly surprising. But they are exceptional because we simply don't get preserved soft tissues in crabs hardly ever in the fossil record. As part of this paper, they did a review of internal soft tissues preserved in fossil decapods. So across crabs, lobsters, shrimps, this whole decapod group. And they noted only 13 species have been reported with preserved digestive tissues, only eight with preserved gills, Only four of those are crabs, so there were only four fossil crabs ever noted with preserved gill tissue before. They also mentioned that there are other soft tissues preserved uh, in crab fossils that have been reported, but these tend to be one or two reports. Yeah. Specifically reports of heart, nerve cord, and ovaries. So soft tissues overall extremely rare in the crab fossil record. This crab is notably the first time that a fossil esophagus has been described (laughs) from an ancient crab, which is pretty cool. Very neat. The other thing that's exceptionally neat about this fossil is the fossil site that it's from. This site in South Dakota is a carbonate deposit that is the remains of an ancient methane seep. This is a cold seep from the floor of the Western Interior Seaway. We talked about cold seeps uh, a bit when we did our episode on the deep sea, episode 128. Yep, yep. These are areas where you get methane or certain other gases emerging from the ground. They're not actually cold. They're just colder than hydrothermal vent environments, which is why they're called cold seeps. Yes, they're not boiling the water temperature (laughs) (laughs) to make it unbearable for us. Today, methane seeps like this are known to host uh, delightful ecosystems of deep sea organisms. There are fossil sites that preserve ancient cold seeps, as we've discussed before. This, not only is it just cool to have a fossil crab from an ancient methane seep, that's neat. Yep. 
but this is, according to the authors, the first time preserved animal soft tissue has ever been reported from an ancient methane seep. Ooh. We've never seen soft tissues from this type of environment before, which is very cool. Number one, because uh, more stuff for us to learn yes. from this ancient environment. But also, as the authors point out, now we know this is possible. Yeah. Now we know that you can get this type of preservation in these types of environments so we can expand our expectations for future investigation into this type of habitat. Oh, man. Now I have all sorts of questions of like, was this crab a seep specialist or just passing by? Like, would this have special adaptations for surviving in this very unique habitat and surviving off of the things growing off of the chemicals being released? Yeah, and I don't know. It sounds like this is an already known genus. Okay. So this has been found elsewhere. I don't know. They may have discussed it in the paper and I didn't read Mm -hmm. that part. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is a crab that is known from these types of environments. Yeah. They did mention that the overall structure that they could see of the soft tissue is similar to modern crabs. Yeah. But I also don't know if it differs in modern crabs between, like, do your gills or your stomach look different Mm -hmm. if you are a cold seep crab versus a crab from somewhere else? I don't know. But with that in mind, maybe that's something to look into. Very cool. These are good newses. We're starting off the year wet. Yes. And since our other three have all been in the ocean, I figure why break the trend and let's Go right back in to talk about whales. People, uh, here's your heads up. 2024, everything we do is going to be in the ocean. Yes, underwater. Every news, every episode. (laughs) The audio quality is going to start getting weird. (laughs) This is news about a giant baleen whale from the Miocene, but larger than other whales from that time. This led the authors to look more closely into the evolution of giant sizes in baleen whales. All right. This is research by James Rule et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. And the article is from The Conversation, so it is also by James Rule and Eric Fitzgerald. So baleen whales, famous for being extremely big, and as we've mentioned in our whale episode and other times that gigantism has come up, It has been a major question about their evolution as to when and why and what was the pattern of them getting so big. Because that's such a extreme feature of them and characteristic to the group. So understanding the pressures that led to those sizes and what the patterns, you know, where it happened, when it happened, did it happen gradually or in bursts, has been a major focus of whale evolution. This research is on a new specimen, not actually newly discovered. Uh, It was found more than 100 years ago in Australia, South Australia, hmm. but is being looked at in more detail here and re-described a bit. They didn't describe a new species, but it it sounds like it, it, it might be something new. This is about 21 to 16 million years old and is mainly just the chin, the tip of the lower jaw. Okay. <laughs> so not a ton of whale, but based off of measurements of today's baleen whales, the filter feeding whales, they estimated a body length of roughly nine meters. Which which is a pretty big size. Which is a pretty big size, making it the largest whale of the early Miocene that we currently know now. 
the Ooh. previous record holder was six meters. So it's notably bigger. Oh, okay. So we're <laughs> half again the size yeah. of the previous record holder, if that measurement is accurate. Absolutely. Unless it had some sort of odd face compared to whales today, this was likely a very large early Miocene whale, and it was from the Southern Hemisphere, which is an interesting situation because there aren't as many fossils of whales from the Southern Hemisphere. So the understanding of the evolution of large baleen whales has been somewhat skewed by that. The fact that we now have the largest member coming out of the Southern Hemisphere prompted them to take a look at the fossil history of baleen whales and when we see and where we see big whales appear. Yeah, what are you getting up to down there? Yep. They said together with other fossils from Peru and South America, they found evidence that suggests the larger baleen whales may have emerged earlier than we had typically expected and that the large size seemed to have been more of a gradual trend and uh, acquisition that they got big slowly over time, over many more millions of years than we had previous, some other previous research had suggested. So it's suggesting a longer but earlier evolution of big size. Gotcha. As opposed to having sort of a jump, quote unquote. Yes, exactly. In a relatively short time, undergoing strong selective pressure for increased body size. Precisely. What they also found is that typically the Southern Hemisphere whales were bigger than the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. That on average, the biggest whales at whatever time you're looking at were Southern Hemisphere species. Interesting. This seems to persist throughout much of the Cenozoic. So it is throughout whale history. This seems to be the average trend, which is also interesting because the Southern Hemisphere, as I mentioned, is lacking in fossil record. They noted it only makes up about 19% of the global whale fossil record. Yeah, so we're not finding very much down there, at least so far. Yes. But when we do, there's a good chance it's big. Yeah, they said it, it was unexpected how strong a signal they got from the whales in the Southern Hemisphere still indicating that, that dominance in bigger size. Interesting. They noted that this doesn't come as a complete surprise based off of today's filter feeding whales because many of them are Southern Hemisphere specialists around the South Pole and feeding off of the blooms of plankton that live down there. And so that connection is not wholly uh, surprising. This is in part due to the current that surrounds Antarctica and can produce these extremely rich waters full of nutrients that cause blooms and plankton, blooms and, pr and krill, and draw in all these whales. They did know that around the time baleen whales started evolving for, as they put it, from big to di gigantic, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's not like they were tiny no. to start. <laughs> uh, that the this does seem to somewhat sync up with when the circumpolar current was intensifying. So there could be a connection to that uh, with them gaining these larger sizes. Right. And we've talked before in our many discussions about gigantism. Uh, for example, episode 144, which was all about it, that changing temperatures and changing food availability are often correlated with, or at least hypothesized to be correlated with, increase in body size. Absolutely. They did note that these findings contradict and kind of contrast a lot of previous findings and, and hypotheses about baleen whale evolution and their increase in size, and that this could potentially highlight how important those Southern Hemisphere whales really are to the research, that we may have been lacking the full picture because they mm. are such a small amount of our current fossil collection. 
So hopefully we will find more southern whales and be able to put this picture together better. Yeah, it's always fun when a new when new findings contradict previous findings because it means probably somebody's wrong. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and maybe it's these. Maybe it's this group. Yes, yeah. yeah. It could be these researchers are wrong. But there is also this. This is a recurring theme uh, with our news where we talk about certain regions of the world or certain habitats that are not as well explored yes. for certain things. This is. Not the first time recently that we have had a news that makes the point that we haven't perhaps searched enough in the Southern Hemisphere for certain fossil groups of animals. I'll be very interested to see if increasing exploration of those regions for fossils shows that we've just been overlooking them or were they actually fossilizing less down there for some reason? Yeah, I'll I'll be excited in, you know, a few decades when... You know, Australia has had, uh, you know, con- a continued boom yes. in uh, fossil excavations, responsible and respectful fossil excavations, uh, one would hope. Absolutely. But all that great fossil data that we've been missing out on for so long. Yeah. Us, Australia and Africa and South America and all those great places. Yes, yes. And with that, we can wrap up the news and move into our main topic where we will be discussing camouflage How do organisms hide in plain sight, and why do they do it? Stay tuned after the break. Every now and then, one of oh, I didn't see you there. (laughs) (laughs) Every now and then, one of our topics we do is a term commonly used outside of science and camouflage is one of those like most of us have encountered that term most of us have seen a camouflaged thing even if it's just clothing right camouflaged clothes or camouflaged equipment yeah it is something that is not just a thing in wildlife yes when you look up the wikipedia Half of it's about animals and half of it's about the military yes (laughs) it is a very common tool and tactic both in nature and in our human society camouflage simply it just put very simply is any adaptation that is attempting to prevent detection or recognition Mm -hmm. any adaptation that is trying to avoid being noticed or recognized falls under camouflage or some similar category right that's the function that's why camouflage adaptations are selected for, Mm -hmm. that is the function that they are hopefully providing. This is often considered kind of an umbrella term. There's some aspects of camouflage that kind of contradict one another in their what they're attempting to do. There are a bunch of gray areas of how much of this camouflage or something else. The common one that comes up, which we will talk about in more detail later, is mimicry. Yes, which we've already uh, done an episode about. Absolutely. Uh, That was episode 126. The main difference between those two is that mimicry is trying to be recognized as another organism. Camouflage very often is trying to not be recognized at all. Mm -hmm. It is just trying to not be noticed. One of the terms that will come up when looking at and studying camouflage is that camouflage is an attempt to control an animal's signal versus its environment's noise. 
Oh, yeah. Signal is whatever things that organism would give off that would be detected by whatever it's trying to hide from. Right. Smell, visual signals. Noise. Noise, anything like that. That is your signal. The noise in this is any information from the environment. Light, sounds from the environment, you know, wind blowing the environment around, the general colors of the background. Mm-hmm. You want your signal to be as close to matching the noise of your environment so that you can just blend in. Yes. If it's too low, you might stand out as being oddly unnoisy, you know, oddly still or yeah. <laughs> like a just black outline, you know, a black silhouette. Right. If you're if you're a, among a background of leaves and bushes and stuff and you're just solid green. Yeah. It's like, "Oh, right, well that now it's conspicuous." Exactly. That is too <laughs> obvious, but you also don't want to be bright yellow. Right. So you want your noise to be as close your signal to be as close to the noise around you. They call this the signal to noise ratio. Okay. Much of camouflage is trying to control that. And there are different ways to try to manipulate those two things. And we will be talking about that. But first, why camo? Camouflage is extremely common. Yeah. Tons of organisms are both mildly to very heavily camouflaged. Unreasonably well camouflaged. (laughs) This is, on the face, just useful when you're not wanting to be seen. Mm -hmm. Which can come handy for very often it's focused on for prey because mm-hmm. you don't want to be seen by whatever's trying to eat you. Yeah, you would benefit from being camouflaged. Absolutely. But predators also can use camouflage to try to avoid being detected by the prey as they approach or as they get ready for the strike. So anytime an organism is wanting to not be seen, camo can be useful. So it is very common across different groups, within different groups. It has evolved many times. There's tons of examples of camouflage within the same group that is not from a common ancestry, but just each one has come upon a different version of camouflage for how they're surviving. Mm -hmm. That is one of the key aspects of camo is that it often is situation dependent. Camo that works in one environment may not work well in another. Yes. So that is one of the kind of sort of drawbacks, but more just a limitation. If you blend in well to a forest, you might not blend in at a beach Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So often it is kind of habitat dependent. It also can be seeker dependent. Whoever is looking for you, one camouflage might work on them. Another might not. Yes. If you are benefiting from hiding from birds versus if the thing that's trying to find you is insects, Mm -hmm. that different camouflage is going to be helpful in those different circumstances. A camo that works on us might not work on a snake with heat vision. Yes. So you have to also take into consideration the senses of whoever you're hiding from. Mm-hmm. So camo- yeah, if you've ever tried to hide from a dog. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you can't hide from a dog the same way you hide from a person. Because you're, you need to hide <laughs> what they're sniffing for. Yes. <laughs> so camouflage can be extremely varied, but it also can be quite limited in its utility. And different camos, different types of camouflage can be more or less limited in those regards. Like some of them are more widely usable in different situations. Camel can also play into the survival of an organism at different points and in different ways. I found one cool breakdown because camo is studied heavily both to understand the evolution and interaction of animals, but also to understand just the mechanics of camouflage and really the psychology of it because we use it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I found one that called it peeling the onion, that there's something called the survivability onion, 
that there are layers to survivability. Your outer layers are your first steps, and then you get more desperate, basically, as you hmm. go in. Interesting. And that basically, it's a list of don'ts. Okay. <laughs> Don't be first there. Sure. Yeah, that's the best way to be undetected. If you can just avoid whatever danger it is you're trying to avoid and not be where it is, you're great. Next is detected. Yes. Don't be seen. Don't be sensed in any way. If you have to be where it is, don't be noticed. Then it's don't be identified. If you are noticed, don't be recognized. Right. So that if they do see you or they do happen to look your way, you don't look like prey. Right. You don't look like the thing they're looking for. Yes. Don't be acquired, which is don't be targeted. Don't get... Okay. That gotcha. One's, gotcha. Yep. Don't be sought after as a target. Mm-hmm. And then don't be engaged. Don't be caught. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't get caught. Don't let them try to start getting you. Don't be hit. And then okay. penetrated, affected are the last three of Gotcha. If you can avoid getting hit or at least getting hit badly or at least you can walk away. Right. <laughs> Camo is at the very front end yeah. After not being there, detected and recognized. Camo's plan B. So camo is kind of the frontline defense after not being wherever your your adversary is. Mm-hmm. It's the first line of defense a lot of the times. And that's part of why it's so crucial that if the camo works, you don't even have to worry about the rest of it. You just stand there. The rest of the onion doesn't matter. <laughs> you are good to go. So it is a highly selected trait because... If it works, it can absolutely shift the survivability of an organism. So let's talk about some forms of camouflage. Yeah, because it's not just the one that comes to mind first. Exactly. There are tons of different ways to camouflage yourself and to avoid detection and recognition. The most common, though, is called crypsis. And this is what you typically think of when you think of camo. This is not being noticed by hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. That you blend in in one way or another and are not recognizable as whatever you truly are. Right. This is sort of the classic image of an animal that has sort of a splotchy brown pattern on it and hangs out in the leaf litter or wood chips or whatever. Yeah. Army man camo falls into this. <laughs> of right. you're, you're just trying to not be noticeable whenever you're hiding where you're hiding. The... Kind of basic and most studied form is background matching. Mm -hmm. You're trying to look like the background you're in. Whatever's behind you, whatever you're surrounded by, you're trying to just blend in with that. That could be having patterns on your skin that match those patterns around you, having the colors that match, having textures that match the surrounding around you. You look like you're rough like a rock or you're... Smooth like a rock. Smooth like a rock or you have like... (laughs) fuzzy bits so that you look like foliage yep yep you know you have features that look like the environment around you so that when you sit still you hopefully just look like a piece of the backdrop you know we ali always likes to remind us that the plants aren't just the background sure but in this case they are often often they are when they're really the background when you're being looked for <laughs> that's what's behind you that's what's behind you there can be specialized background matching where you match one environment very well. Mm -hmm. But there's also generalist or compromise background matching where you match multiple habitats, but usually not as effective. Right. You know, not as dead on. There's so many examples of this. This is probably one of the most common forms of camouflage on our planet. You have 
animals in the desert with sandy textured and colored skin. Mm -hmm. A lot of desert lizards and snakes are like that. Yep. You have ones that blend in with dead leaves. A lot of snakes are famous for that as well. Vipers and stuff. You have insects that will march that will match the bark of trees that they're on. Mm -hmm. You know, moths are famous for that and tons of lizards as well. Again, so super common. You have lots of ocean organisms that can resemble the coral or the rock that they are, you know, blending into and just matching the color so that they can just kind of sit there mm-hmm. you know they don't necessarily they're not necessarily shaped like a piece of coral but they're wearing the yeah. same they're matching outfits yes if you're just scanning over the coral yeah. you're likely to overlook that there are also some odder forms of background matching that you might not think as counting as background matching transparency is probably hmm. when you when you're considering matching your background just getting to see the background through you. Yeah, that's a great... That being invisible is <laughs> yeah. a great form of camouflage. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is a tool used by organisms, mostly aquatic. Yeah. I think mostly, things like jellies yes, and stuff like that. exactly. There's some... Uh, a lot of plankton is transparent. A lot of young crustaceans, a lot of young fish will mm-hmm. be transparent. Yep. And yeah, if you can just let whatever your pursuer is seeing be what's behind you, That's the best way to blend into the background because you are now just showing them the background. It is, though, quite limited in a number of ways. One, it doesn't work in all mediums. Mm -hmm. The reason it's so common in the ocean but not on land is because water and animal tissue have a very similar refractive quality for light. Yeah, light passes through them in a similar way. That is not true of our flesh and air. Yes, so, if you if you hold up a glass of water in the air, you can see where that glass of water is, yes. even though it's clear. The light is being affected by the water, whereas a glass of air is a lot easier to look past. Yeah. Well, and it's like if you've ever seen someone, you know, holding a jellyfish or like finding a jellyfish on the beach, it can be very obvious. If you put that in the water, it can kind of just disappear because mm-hmm. now the light isn't passing through differently. Yes. If you're an organism like young fish that have more complex tissues and organs than a jellyfish, you also need to make some major modifications to allow light to pass through you. Mm -hmm. This can have things like just having a higher water content in your body so that you are closer to the consistency of water. You also need to reduce the organelles inside your cells. Yeah, those are opaque. Yeah, because those are those need to do a job. They can't be see-through to do that job because they're made out of stuff that's not see-through. So you have to kind of cluster them. Some of them have had things that I saw called clearing agents, hmm. which are chemicals that improve the refractiveness of their body fluids and cytoplasm inside the cells. Interesting. So you might need to change your body chemistry to make it allow light to travel through you better. It's also very common to see a lot of larval fish, especially like eels, be very thin and flat Mm -hmm. so that the light doesn't have to travel through much of you. Yes. (laughs) To get through. You're not a big, thick creature that the light is going to have lots of time to get disrupted and show stuff. You're very thin. So the light gets through you real quick and hopefully can show the background more clearly. There's also kind of a cheating way to get around this. You could also just make yourself shiny. Mm -hmm. This can kind of have the same effect. Uh, this is used in movies all the time to make something seem like there's nothing there is if you put a mirror and whatever you're reflecting looks like what's behind it, it will trick the mind into thinking that nothing's there. Mm-hmm. And in the ocean where everything can kind of look the same, if I'm reflecting back 
ocean color to you. Well, the ocean behind me is the same color. Yep. So you see silvering as a very common background matching technique for a lot of fish. I'm just going to reflect ocean and hopefully I blend into the ocean behind me. There's also potentially a defensive function here where when they do scatter, the flashing might be distracting and might mm. be startling. So it might have a dual defensive purpose to being silvery. And then, of course, you can go the other extreme, which is once again an ocean adaptation. Ultra blackness is one term I found hmm. for deep sea organisms. Yeah, that makes sense. Because now you're not having to worry about blending into the light around you and the habitat directly. But some of the deep sea organisms do have bioluminescence that they can use as flashlights. So you still might want to reflect back as little of that light as possible. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them will be hyper, hyper dark colored and reflect, reflect very little light. But probably the most famous top tier version of background matching is color changing. Yep. Just matching your background as you get to it. Yes. There's tons of animals that can change their color many of which not on command. Some of them are in different scenarios. Mm -hmm. uh, one that I wasn't fully aware of are crab spiders hmm. uh, can change their color. There's certain crab spiders that will hide among flowers. There's a, at least a, a species, I don't know if there's multiple, that will often hide on yellow flowers, but if they find themselves among white flowers, they can reabsorb the yellow pigment. Oh, interesting. And sequester it or excrete it and get rid of it. And then if they, when they finish, they will take on a more translucent white color. Mm -hmm. And then if they're finding themselves back on their yellow flowers, they can either get back those sequestered pigments and release them again or start to produce new pigments. Mm -hmm. This, though, does take three days to do. Oh, okay. So it's so not, not, a, not super quick. Not super quick. This is them literally changing the color of their body yeah. <laughs> by moving pigment in and out of parts <laughs> of their body. Uh, as opposed to the sort of the masters of this. Yes. Which are cephalopods. Cephalopods. Uh, specifically octopuses. Yeah. They are the master background matchers. Yes. And this is it's an interesting uh, example of camouflage because it's very easy to talk about camouflage and a, and a lot of evolutionary things in terms of like wants and needs. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing that you require. But of course, camouflage is most often a passive thing. Oh, yeah, you just like are that color. You animals are bark colored. Chosen to be bark colored. That's something that was beneficial yes. and, and evolved gradually. Sometimes organisms can choose where they stand. Mm -hmm. an, an animal might choose to go, well, I am on some level aware of the color I am. I will go stand over here. Color changing, and especially the way that octopuses do it, is an extremely intentional active thinking form of camouflage. Yes. I'm going to go sit on that rock and then change both my color and my texture to look like this rock. Yep. Which is a really cool ability that they have. They also, many of them uh, will have, many cephalopods will have reflective cells as well. So mm. they can turn on that more blending in with the open water camouflage. So they have multiple forms to blend in and change their appearance to just match whatever background they're on. Yes. This is a great place to point out that there are also animals that change color that can sometimes help for camouflage, but that's not necessarily why they're changing exactly. color. The famous example of this are chameleons. Yep. I'm so sorry, dear listener, if today is the day that you're learning that chameleons don't change color to blend into their background. Yep. Chameleons change color for communication. They'll mm -hmm. turn different colors 
for territorial displays, stuff like that. And often one of the colors in their repertoire is a color that happens to be good for blending in. Yes. Like a lot of chameleons are green much of the time, sort of passively. And that absolutely has a camouflage benefit. But they don't, it's not like in the cartoons, chameleons don't actually like walk in front of a red thing and then turn red. Yes. That's not actually what their color changing is for. Yeah, it 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 is one of those confusing scenarios where they do change color and there are animals that do that. Yes. But it's they, not chameleons, it's octopus. They do change color <laughs> and they're good at camouflage. Yes, exactly. And there are animals that change color for camouflage. Yes. But they're different things. Yep. <laughs> it's a little bit confusing, but uh, it is true. So background matching is kind of the classic idea of mm -hmm. being camouflaged. Typically, if you say something's camouflaged, that's what we mean. Right. That's what is being implied. But that's not the only way you can disappear into your environment. One of the others, and a fairly simple concept that very often doesn't seem like it should work, but does, is just disruptive coloration. Mm -hmm. You have a pattern on your body that is often contradicting patterns. You know, lights and darks and hard edges to the pattern that make you hard to recognize as a solid object. Right. If you look at like a lizard or a snake that has sort of a very blotchy pattern, that makes it harder to see the outline of a lizard. Yes. Because there's all these other lines and shapes that are within that. It looks like noise. What they will call false edges. Mm -hmm. So yep. is that edge your actual elbow or is this elbow shaped edge in the middle of your back your elbow? Yes. <laughs> and it just kind of blurs the shape of an animal. Mm-hmm. These can be used in concert with background matching. Sure. So you can have bark patterns and then also have some random patterns. And like you can use a little bit of both. They're not exclusive. With disruptive coloration, there are a couple of main techniques in the colors you use. One was called differential blending, which is some of your colors do match your background. Like you're doing the background matching stuff. You're the green of your background. You're the brown of your background. This is helping to reduce your signal. The other was called Maximum Disruptive Contrast. Next to those background matching colors, you have non-background matching colors that are a hard border and right next to the similar colors. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you have a green background, you might have a yellow or a black spot or something that is very much not that color, doesn't blend with the background, and is a not blurry shape. It's not a gradient from one color to the other. It's a spot or it's a stripe. Mm -hmm. This increases the noise by adding those false edges and yes, adding a bit of chaos. You're looking for a frog. You're not looking for a spot. Exactly. And so it just kind of muddles the, the appearance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times these patterns will kind of stand out. Like if you just hold it up against the background, it doesn't blend in with the background, but it also doesn't look like a cheetah. Right. And that's really what disruptive coloration is going for. You're not trying to blend in. You're just trying not to be noticed as what you are. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to not look like a thing. Spots and stripes are the common examples. That That's the go-to examples for these spotted and striped big cats. But you can also find spots and stripes on all sorts of animals. That just breaks up the pattern of the organism it has those false edges it can cut them in half if you have a you know big black stripe around the middle of you it can literally make you look like not one object but two this has the benefit of 
it can work in multiple habitats. Like it will break up your outline very often, no matter where you are, you just might not have the blending into the background. So it's not as habitat specific often as background matching is, but it does have the if issue of if your background doesn't have hard edges, you know, if you're not in a place with light and shadow, if you're on a beach, that's one color. Now you might stick out more mm -hmm. as a bunch of spots and then vice versa. If you have a more blended pattern that's trying to match a more subtle background, you might stand out. So it still can be specific, but a bit more general. And then one camouflage that kind of is doing a similar thing to both of these and can be doing aspects of both of them is self-decoration. Cover yourself in stuff that either matches the background, conceals your shape, or just changes you to not look like a crab. <laughs> uh... Decorator crabs are a famous example of this. They have hooks all over their body that they can stick anemones and pieces of algae and sponge to, and they now just kind of look like a piece of the reef, a piece of the, the habitat. You have the catus flies that make those, not cocoons, but kind of enclose themselves in bits of stick and rock mm -hmm. that they can hide most of their body in. I found examples of like assassin bugs that do a similar thing. There's lots of insects that'll cover themselves in things. This is sometimes called debris carrying, that you're carrying junk with you just to kind of hide who you are. This can also have a benefit the others don't in that you now actually have a physical barrier that could act as an extra layer of defense if you are attacked. The next category is one we've mentioned a number of times, but I don't think often gets uh, considered a form of camouflage is countershading. Yep. Countershading is just a description for whenever an organism has a dark back and a light underbelly yep. which is very common that's very very common that's just counter shaded you are not shaded the same you are counter shaded the reason this is useful is that when an animal when any object is lit from above when light hits it from the top which is where a lot that's, of our light comes from where light comes from because that's where the sun you know is in relation to us sure it's up <laughs> it's up we all know we've all seen yes, the sun it's yeah there it is <laughs> when you get lit from above the top of an object will become brighter and the underside will become shaded mm -hmm. it'll uh, you'll cast a shadow this shading can reveal the 3d shape of an object yeah it makes it easy to see the shape of a thing this is why when you're learning in art class to shade objects <laughs> they can tell you that you could trick someone to think this ball is hollow or a sphere based on how you shade it because our brains automatically know how to calculate where the shadow is and what shape should be there. This is why optical illusions can mess with you so well, because if you just mess with that information, it messes with the way our brain assumes that object is. So if you're in the woods and you see something shaded like that, you immediately know there's something that is 3D there and is being shaded differently than the trees around it. So if you can eliminate that shadow information, that shading... Right. If you're naturally darker on top mm -hmm. and lighter on the bottom you are countering the shading that is otherwise happening. Now your back will get lightened by the light and the belly will become darker and they will kind of even out. Sort of, you, you get sort of a flat appearance. Yes, and it does. It flattens out the shape. It eliminates the 3D shape. This is often called self-shadow concealment or obliterative shading where you obliterate <laughs> the 3D shape. <laughs> you disappear because you've gotten rid of your shadow. Yep. As you said, extremely common. Picture an animal. It's probably countershaded. Very often it's going to have a lighter <laughs> belly than it does a back. 
We see this, we see tons of trends. Primates that walk on all fours tend to be countershaded. Primates that spend more time up on their back legs tend not to be. Makes sense. Because they're no longer going to benefit from it. We see in trends with a lot of ruminants, you know, our hooved herbivores, that show trends of open environments and closed environments, how much they're countershaded to match the shadows of their habitats. There's also the added benefit that this can be a form of background matching, mm -hmm. especially if you're in a 3D environment like birds or fish. Now things could be above and below you and observe you. And now you have two different surfaces to blend in with two different backgrounds. Yes. Very helpful in the ocean. Yes. Uh, in, in where things are looking at you from all directions. So now like great white shark is often pointed out as the classic example, just because it's such a clearly two-toned animal. The dark gray back will blend in with the depth. The white belly, I've seen lots of things that say it will blend in with the surface light. Mm -hmm. uh, though I've not actually found like research of if it does help eliminate the silhouette. Mm -hmm. But I've seen things suggest that the white will reduce the intensity of the silhouette or just let you blend in with background sunlight at least. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much support there is because in my mind, I... I feel like wouldn't the silhouette be doing something, but I haven't heard things address the yeah. silhouette in a research paper. But you can blend in from underneath, and it has been noted with birds with white bellies mm -hmm. that you they... Blend in with the sky. Yes, that they can blend in much better with the lighter background of the sky and with the ground if being hunted from above. Mm -hmm. There's also the more extreme version of this, which we talked about in the bioluminescence episode, which is counter-illumination. Yes, that was 157. That to eliminate your silhouette, instead of just trying to be lighter, you actually brighten yourself with light. Firefly squid is the classic example of this, but there's a number of deep sea fish and organisms that produce light on their belly to blend in with the background sunlight. It's also been pointed out, though, that it doesn't guarantee when you see counter shading that it is for camouflage because it also is just useful to be darker on your back if you're in the sun, because UV protection is good. This is true. We don't know just because we see a two-toned animal that it for sure is trying to hide its shadow, but it definitely can be. Next up, we have what's called masquerade, which is probably one of the other forms of camo that I think a lot of people might come to first when they hear the term. This is when you look like something in your environment, mm -hmm. not just blending in, but you look like a rock or a stick or a leaf. You look like an object in your environment, usually something that's uninteresting, unpalatable, or just inert, you know, a, a dead leaf. Right. The classic group of animals that are famous for this are insects. Yes. Insects are great at this. Leaf insects, stick insects, insects that are named after the thing that they look like. And there are some examples of these that are incredible. Yeah, you know, Katie did with dead sections of the leaf. Yeah, like <laughs> de like diseased splotches yeah. that look like a diseased leaf. There's butterflies that look like dead leaves that lay on their side yep. when they land. There are caterpillars that look like bird poop. Yep, there's spiders that look like bird poop. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there's a number of them that have decided, you know what people don't want to mess with? Poop. Bird poop. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to eat poop. <laughs> This form of camouflage, though, is somewhat unique. It kind of breaks from a lot of the others. Most of the other ones we've talked about have been avoiding being noticed. Mm -hmm. You blend in with your background so that I don't even notice that there's something there. 
or you break up your shape so that I don't notice, even if I see spots, I'm not noticing that it's in the shape of an animal. Mm -hmm. I'm not noticing that you're there. And in the be in the worst case scenarios, I'm at least not recognizing you. This is still trying to avoid recognition, but it's kind of banking on being detected. Yeah. It, it, the, it, it, the, this, this works if whatever is seeking this organism recognizes the object and doesn't want that object. Yeah, so you they, do want to be noticed yes, for it, this to work, kind of. If you're a katydid who has evolved to have the shape of a leaf, you need it to be true that this thing looking for you knows what a leaf is. Yes. And will recognize this animal as a leaf and then not be interested in the leaf. So one of the ways they've described the difference between this and especially Crypsis, that you know this is very similar to blending in with your background, but slightly different with Crypsis, where you're blending in somehow, that is a lack of signal. Mm -hmm. When you're blending in with your background, you're trying to just not give any signal. I hope I don't even hope you go, that's an interesting bit of forest, but whatever. No, I did that. I just go forest. This is a signal. It's a false signal. I am saying stick. Stick. Yep. Stick. I am giving off the signal of a stick. I'm giving a very specific signal. So this is a more direct form of deceit than a lot of other camouflages, where I'm not trying to trick you into thinking I'm anything with a lot of the others. I'm just hoping you don't see anything. This, I, I am hoping if you see me, you think something else. This does make it a bit more universal than a lot of other camouflages, if a stick insect was on our table right now, it still wouldn't look like food, potentially. Yeah, it still looks like a stick. It still looks like a stick. So even if you're out of your environment, you still probably, if your camouflage works, won't look like food. Mm -hmm. You will still look like not an animal. And there is, of course, some overlap with masquerading and blending in. There are animals like vine snakes, yep. which look a lot like a vine if they're in a tree with a bunch of vines. Yes, if you saw it outside of that environment, you might go, okay, well, that's clearly a snake. Yes. So it's got a little bit of both. Yep. Your masquerade works as a blending tool. So you can have kind of a gradient, a slider bar for how masqueraded you are. Mm -hmm. You have stick insect where it's like, you can look like a stick whenever you want, wherever you want. And if someone doesn't pay attention, they probably go, why do you have a stick on your desk? Yep. Or you can be somewhat masqueraded so that you are taking on the attributes of a thing, but not fully matching it. There are uses for this that are classically avoiding predators, but predators can also use it. Uh, I found some really interesting examples. There are leaf fish that will look like dead leaves and then ambush prey that they get close enough to. Hmm. There's also, and this was included under the umbrella of masquerade, death feigning, looking like a corpse. Huh was counted, at least in one paper I found, as a form of masquerade. You're trying to look like a dead body. Interesting. Yeah, and the examples they gave, like tons of animals use this as a avoidant, a way to avoid predators. Right, like possums very famously mm -hmm. will pretend to be dead. Yes. This one also mentioned there are cichlid fish pretend to be dead by either like burying themselves. One of them has colors matching a rotten fish. Hmm. And then when scavengers come to feed on them, they eat them. <laughs> <laughs> wow so right? it's like a it's almost like a lure yeah but you're you are turning your whole body not into another prey item but just a dead piece of flesh which is kind of crazy 
And obviously, this category of camouflage has a lot in common with mimicry. Yes. Uh, and- which we mentioned before, which we've talked about. Uh, in episode 126, we had a whole episode about that. That is where a lot of the conversation around masquerade will often come to. There has actually been quite a bit of debate among scientists as to whether or not it should be mimicry. Right, where do we draw the line? Is this camouflage or is this mimicry? Because we already mentioned that masquerade differs from Crypsis in some key ways. It is trying to look like a thing, not trying to not look like anything specific. And you'll often hear it called leaf mimicking insects. Mm -hmm. And sometimes masquerade is called mimesis. It is called a form of miming. (laughs) This is because both mimicry and masquerade are trying to resemble something specific, not just something obscure. They're both trying to not be recognized as what you are, but be recognized as something else. So you are, you have that lack of recognition that camouflage has, but you're adding in a layer of recognition that is not there with a lot of camouflage, but is there in mimicry. And often both are used in very similar ways of mimics trying to avoid predation or mimic predators trying to get closer to prey. And same with masquerade. The differences that are noted that for the people who are arguing they should stay separate is that masquerade involves inanimate objects, not another organism, Mm -hmm. which is the, the main thing that is usually used to separate mimicry and masquerade. Sure. And here come the plant people yes. to say, well, yep. but a leaf is an organism. Yes. Which is one of those where, yeah, at what point do you draw a line? Is a dead leaf mimicking? Is that the same as mimicking the plant itself? Right. Like, the big difference that a lot of people point to is that in mimicry, at least Batesian mimicry, which is when a harmless animal mimics a threatening animal, either toxic or dangerous, they affect the evolution of their model. Whatever they're mimicking is likely to get attacked more often by predators now because every now and then the predator will eat a safe mimic and go, well, that thing tasted great. That's the same color. I'm going to go eat it now. Mm -hmm. And so they will actually raise the predation on their model organisms. Masquerade isn't affecting the evolution of anything, especially if they're mimicking dead leaves and rocks. No evolution of another organism is being roped into it. So it is having a fundamentally different effect in the environment. So there is some key differences in the way it at least plays a role in the ecosystem. Though I did find one thing that made the argument that they do have an effect on their hosts, but in in different ways. Mm -hmm. That mimicry affects indirectly by causing a raise in predation. Masquerade can often have direct effects on the hosts because a lot of them, like stick insects, are herbivorous. So they are... Acting like a stick and then going and eating the plants, the leaves of the plant they're hiding on. Or if you're like the orchid mantis, which is looking like a flower, you're often eating the insects that might be eating the plant or pollinating the plant. So they do have an effect on what they're mimicking. Yep. Just not a, the same effect. This is a great one of those situations where we came up with multiple terms for multiple things, and now we're grappling with the incredible overlap between them in trying to preserve our terminology to keep things distinct. But th- it, that's a very hard thing to do sometimes. Yes. So most often you will find Masquerade grouped with camouflage in, in discussions about camouflage. But every now and then it will come up alongside mimicry or kind of under under the umbrella of mimicry. And then finally, there's just a couple other categories that kind of don't, are kind of their own weird, unique things. One I only found mentioned a couple of times was called distractive markings, where you have 
more conspicuous markings on your body to distract from something that would give away what you are. Uh, hmm. This is often noted in a lot of Arctic animals, which are almost pure snowy white because they match their snowy environment. But then we'll often have some dark and very clear black spots or tips of the tail or wings and don't blend in with the background. Now, this could be partially just disruptive, you know, break up your shape, but it also might be that if I notice the spots, it draws me away from your eyes. Mm-hmm. So I don't notice your face or it draws me away from the outline that would show me that an animal's... I just go, why is there some black specks in the snow? And now I'm too close to the owl and the owl can pounce. Mm-hmm. You know, so this could be a form of avoiding recognition camo. There's also a ton of conversation about camouflage in motion mm-hmm. because that's one of the biggest downsides to camouflage. Most of them only work when you're standing relatively still. You know, if I'm running through a field, even though I'm wearing a really great camo outfit, you're going to be like, that grass is sprinting. Yep. So I know it's not grass. Only when I'm still do I blend in. This is the case for a ton of animals. And that is fine until you have to move. (laughs) You know, if you need to get somewhere, if you need to get food, if you're a predator trying to get to the prey, you have to somehow account for your movement. There's obvious solutions like moving slowly just so that hopefully it's not noticeable or moving in bursts, you know, moving a bit and then staying still, moving a bit, standing still. The classic cat stalking mm-hmm. motion of if you've ever seen your cat trying to stalk you, they don't move while you're looking at them. But as soon as you look away, they move really quick and then they stop hoping they blend back in. You can also just find a more noisy environment, so to speak, one where there's lots more motion for you to blend in with a flowing river is going to be easier for you to hide among because the water is causing so much chaos that you might be able to get away with it. You also, though, have to account for the motion of your environment. You know, if you are too still in a moving environment, you might stand out, but you also can take advantage of the motion of your environment. They call this motion masquerade, moving like the environment around you. Stick insects and vine snakes will move. They'll sort like, of sway. Yeah, they'll move in that back and forth like a branch in the wind, but they just take a little bit of a step forward each time they move. So they are never, they're not coming back to the same spot. They are slowly moving forward. Chameleons will do this. Mm-hmm. Once again, cephalopods have the cheating route of just real-time camo. I'm just going to move and change my camo to match what I'm moving to, either by moving, and a lot of them will take on a more disruptive pattern when in motion, so that they blend in more generally, and then switching to the next camo when they land. But cuttlefish have been noticed to transition from a light to dark background and transition their camo in real time as they move over the border. So just literally predator cloaking (laughs) from one habitat to another. And there are forms of camouflage that rely on motion. And these are kind of unusual. One was called flicker fusion. And this is a type of crypsis blending into your background, but you have stripes that only blend when you move and it blurs the stripes together. Hmm. And then the blurred color matches into your background. So you only match your background while moving fast enough to be blurry. So if you're needing to scurry around a forest, having this kind of striped pattern might help you blend while in motion. So even if someone notices the motion, they can't keep track of it. This has been suggested for a lot of like striped snakes as well, though it said the evidence isn't solid, but that your striped and banded animals could be using this kind of blur effect of an object in motion. A similar but different form is called motion dazzle, 
which is using typically stripes, but there can be other patterns as well, to disguise the direction and speed of your movement. This is typically a form of camouflage that is after you've already been noticed and are currently trying to get away. Zebra stripes are the classic form of this, that I am in motion, but the stripes make it hard for you to fully immediately tell if I'm going right or left or how fast I'm going because it's messing with your perspective. I also saw this suggested for like tiger stripes when they're in the the final phase of pouncing or pursuing that it might throw off your perception of how close or how quickly I'm coming at you. So you can have camo that is much more active. They, call, they often call this dynamic camo mm -hmm. that is relying on motion or reacting to the dynamic environment around them. And you can have camouflage that is kind of counterintuitive that it stands out. Iridescence, you know, shininess. And a number of beetles was found to reduce predation, whether it was making them just harder to see or blend in or not seem like food is harder to know. But you can also have camouflage that is actively not looking like the environment and is shiny. So you can get many odd scenarios. And then finally, uh, plants do all of these, basically. Like other than the, the motion ones, you can have ones that blend in with their background, that look like rocks, that have disruptive colors, and often this is to avoid predation. You get mimicry in plants, which we talked a bit about, but once again, is that you know camouflage or mimicry, depending on how they're using it, uh, is up to that debate. But you will get plants that basically do all of these things as well. It's just much less studied, so I don't have as many fun examples as the animals because I did not come across as many. And so those are a number of the forms. There's you know specifics and there's odd examples within many of those, but that is kind of a tour through the variation of camouflage and the many ways you can that an animal can try to disguise or avoid de detection and not be seen in its environment, hiding in plain sight. And of course, uh, the examples we've been talking about, and a lot of the famous examples of camouflage are very focused on visual detection. Mm -hmm. You can also have camouflage with other senses. Yes. There are a lot of animals that will camouflage their scents. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, is it parrotfish, I think, that do this? There are certain fish that will cover themselves in mucus or things yep. that have a certain smell that is meant to make them harder to detect. Yeah, the, the parrotfish will do that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also just suggested for a lot of the decoration ones that you might be literally covering up your sense of smell yeah, by yeah, covering yeah. yourself with other things. Yeah, there it, uh, we talked about noise as the background. You can also blend in with literal noise. Yep. Yeah, there you can have uh, animals with adaptations for sound camouflage. So it can be focused. Whatever sense it is that something is using to seek out this animal you can get adaptations to disguise those signals. Yes. So there's tons more specific examples and some of which are not as widespread, you know, like that certain groups do them, but we don't see it as used in as many others. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of really interesting research out there, but this kind of gives you an intro into some of the ver the variety and diversity of it mm -hmm. and the many ways you can try to deceive whoever's seeking you. There are also a lot of interesting ways that adaptations for camouflage can interact with the ecology or lifestyle of certain species, mm -hmm. where you will have certain individuals of a species are camouflaged. Like in some, you'll have like 
the females are camouflaged. Yes. And they're birds, for example. You'll have a lot of drab colors in females, but males are not camouflaged. Either they, for one reason or another, don't need to be. In some species, I've heard it suggested that it's more beneficial for females to be camouflaged because they're the ones that eventually will be guarding a nest. Mm-hmm. And if they're camouflaged, it also is protecting that nest from being detected. But also that it may just be more beneficial for males to be colorful and showy to attract mates yep, yep. than it is for them to be blending in. It's also pretty common for animals to have different camouflage at different life stages. Yes, which is very true. Like we uh, talked about the larval fish. Yes. Uh, and a, fa- a classic example that we talk about a lot uh, here uh, over at the Gray Fossil site is tapers do this. Yep. Baby tapers have all like spots and stripes and stuff, and then they grow up and often will have more solid coloration. Yes. You see this with a lot of animals where the young, there are a number of snakes that do this too. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. young have more of a camouflage pattern and then the adults don't, uh, which is often suggested to be tied to the fact that young animals are tend, tend to be smaller. They tend to be more defenseless. Having another layer of defense against predation is beneficial. And so they'll develop this camouflage. There's also a lot of camouflage that's situational that mm-hmm. like predators are not camouflaged all the time because they're not always they're not always trying to hide from prey. So you may only see them utilize their camo techniques and behavior right before a kill. Right. You know, so there's a bunch of predator camouflages that you might not know exactly how it's utilized unless you watch them during a hunt because they're not trying to hide when they're not hunting. While a lot of other prey items will hide more often than they're not hiding because there's danger around every corner. <laughs> yes, which is an interesting point about camouflage that sometimes you can look at a thing that is supposedly camouflaged, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem camouflage because the situation's not right. Exactly. Either they're not exhibiting that behavior or something I've heard you make the point of, you might not be the thing that it is camouflaging from. It's not hiding from you. Yes, I can see that uh, bug or whatever over there. Either because I know what to look for. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, somebody showed me a picture and said, there's a bug in this picture. Yes. So I'm, I'm actively looking in this, you know, five square inch block of tree as opposed to just walking through a forest. Mm-hmm. But also I might just have better or different senses yeah. than the predators of that animal. I don't have lizard eyes, mm-hmm. so I'm not seeing you the way the lizard does. I've seen that point made about tigers that... The way their prey sees them is different than the color scheme we're seeing, and they blend in differently. Yeah. You know, that you what you see is not what their prey or predators might be seeing or noticing. It's also key to remember that it's sometimes hard to know who the camouflage is for. Yeah. If you're a mid-sized predator, your camo might be to hide from prey and other predators. Yes. So you might need to blend like in. snakes. Like snakes. Snakes are a great example of that. You're hunting rodents, but the birds are hunting you. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> you might, it's sometimes very difficult as researchers to point at a camouflage and go, that's obviously blending in with this. It's obviously hiding from this. And they use it this way. Because you might not be able to confirm any one of those for sure. And sometimes, like we were saying with countershading, you might go, maybe that works as camouflage. Uh, but maybe that's not the reason you have it. Maybe you have it for other benefits. And that it can be difficult to interpret camouflage, partially because there can be different functions mm-hmm. for how an organism, the signals they're giving off, 
but also because the benefits for camouflage, the selective pressures for camouflage, contradict some other features. Yes. For example, it is very beneficial for many animals to not be noticed in certain circumstances, but it is also essential for them to be noticed in certain circumstances. Yep. If animals are trying to find mates, then if you blend in perfectly with the environment, you're not going to be successful in that. Yeah, yeah. So there is <laughs> you're this... You're quirking a rock <laughs> yeah. because you two both are looking like rocks. There is this trade-off between the needs to both be noticed and not noticed. It's something that I always find very interesting to think about animals like grasshoppers or frogs that are extremely well camouflaged and then they completely ruin it by screaming croaking and screaming <laughs> and then when you get close to them they be, they become very quiet and you're like i know there's a frog here yeah because i heard it and it was coming from right here and i cannot find a frog yes exactly <laughs> so there's the there's these interesting trade-offs uh sort of that are that are conflicting evolutionary patterns this a lot of the research on camouflage will often be looking at these things both from like the perception and psychology of the perceiver you know what are they seeing how is their brain processing what they're seeing mm -hmm. all of these things factor into it but also like the concept of attention that you can only pay attention to so many things but sometimes you want attention sometimes you don't and that balancing of it is comes up in a lot of camouflage research because a lot of that research is now just trying to understand kind of the the phenomena and trend and mechanism of it in a broader scheme than just individual examples yeah well and you can't understand camouflage by just looking at the camouflaged organism yes if i don't know what's hunting you you have to know the environment you have to know who's being fooled by the camouflage all of that is important precisely which brings us very nicely to our break, because after this, we will be talking about fossil examples of camouflage, where a lot of these questions come up, and we are trying to see what we can glean of those components when we find examples of camouflage in the fossil record. As is often the case, after we've just gotten done talking about a very cool feature of living organisms, it is quite common that we do not find evidence of it preserved in the fossil record, because a lot of the things that animals use to camouflage themselves and organisms use to camouflage themselves are soft tissues. Yep, it's a lot of behavior. Yep. It's a lot of... Uh, depending on a background mm -hmm. and it's a lot of coloration and stuff that is expressed in like hair and skin. Yes. And m m most of that does not tend to preserve alongside the bones and such of fossils. Your bones aren't the part you camouflage. Not usual. Because it's already hidden inside your body. <laughs> so we definitely have a situation where when we find evidence of camouflage in fossils it is a rarity it is an unusual situation so that is definitely something that we keep our eye out for but it's hard to go looking for since it's not showing up ironically often. yeah it, it can <laughs> be very hard to find <laughs> camouflaged fossil organisms maybe that is a testament uh, uh, to how good they are at okay it. all right all right <laughs> touche fossils typically defined camo you know evidence of camouflage 
we need to either find exceptionally preserved individuals that have you know preserved pigment or stuff or it needs to be a situation where the organism is preserved you know like right amber an insect and amber or something like that tons of examples of insects with camouflage uh we have found a number of those some of many of these are from amber there are some that are fossilized as uh, impressions and so forth. There was at least one fossil I found noted from the Permian that was a katydid that had leaf mimicking, you know, quote unquote mimicking, mm-hmm. wing casings. The front wings were in the shapes of leaves, which we see tons of katydids do today. And they said, these basically look like katydids today. Which is pretty cool. So all the way back to the Permian, we already have extreme masquerade for leaves in insects. Yeah, which probably means that that means there's a very good chance that insects have been beautifully, unbelievably masquerading as leaves for about as long as there have been insects and leaves. Yes. And as is often the case with many of these examples, it gives us some insight into what they were hiding from. They were hiding from visual predators that were looking for them and would see a leaf. Yes, and uh, wouldn't you know it, last episode, mm-hmm. we talked a whole lot about what kind of some of the visual predators that there would have been around back in the Carboniferous and Permian. So we often can't get like, oh, this means they were being hunted by this group. Right. But they were hiding from visual predators. Yes, if they weren't worried, if they were only worried about being smelled, yes. there's no reason to look like a leaf. That is just completely extra if you're hiding from something that's only sniffing for you right but there would have been visually hunting uh, right other insects mm-hmm. that hunted visually uh early uh, tetrapods early mammal or reptile cousins that hunted that way precisely there's also evidently a ton of insects from cretaceous amber showing debris carrying behavior huh. of carrying stuff on them right, and like those caddis flies yes yes that that decoration camouflage that is specifically called debris carrying or trash carrying, where you just <laughs> cover yourself in junk. You're just a junk bug. Yeah. And then you hopefully just look like a little pile of junk and not a insect, typically insect larva. Yep. It's not usually the adult insects that are doing this. It's typically the young. And that's the case with the caddisflies. I think yes. th- those are bagworms, right? Yes. I yep. could be thinking the wrong name. No, I'm pretty it- sure that that's the, the common name there. Uh, a lot of these will have special features for holding on to whatever trash hooks and spines and stuff some of them are crazy once again these have the benefit of blending in potentially covering up smell and you now have a whole bunch of stuff on your back so if you're attacked maybe that'll get in the way yep you have a literal barrier they did make a note here which i thought was interesting of the costs of debris carrying which would probably apply to a lot of other decorative camouflagers that you now have to gather your camouflage. Mm-hmm. You're not born with it. You it have to go effort. get it. So it takes that effort. And if you don't find it, then you you might not be able to camouflage. And it might get in the way because now there's a bunch of stuff on you. Yeah, now you're covered in junk. So you might not be able to move as well or, or feed as effectively because you've got stuff on you. So it, it is a kind of dis, uh, disruptive to your daily life mm-hmm. form of camouflage, which is kind of interesting. I saw a number of groups mentioned Green lacewing larvae, there were a number of them that showed a structure on the back that are these tubercles, is what they call them, these branching structures coming off the back with little hairy, tangly bits to tangle the the debris, but a bunch of them forming a basket. Hmm. It it is very, very alien looking. There's a, a 
drawings and some of the papers. So if we can, if I can get a hold of those, we will put in the blog post. But very odd basket structure. It's called a basket, a debris basket or trash basket. I guess is another name that you could use for it. <laughs> a trash bin. Yep, trash bin. They will carry you know vegetation stuff, but a number of them were noted carrying insect exoskeletons. Huh. Which is notable because these are predatory larvae. So very likely these are exoskeletons from their prey. Are you eating <laughs> prey and then using what's left of them to disguise yourself? Yeah, once you suck out their insides, yeah. <laughs> you just have these hollow pieces of exoskeleton. Don't mind me, fellow insects. <laughs> I am just one of you. <laughs> I know that there are assassin bugs that will do this with mm-hmm. ant parts yep. uh, to try to avoid predation because as we mentioned in the ants episode, a lot of animals don't want to mess with ants. Yeah, assassin bugs are famous for like hiding under, you know, dead bugs mm-hmm. or things like that to avoid being noticed by their prey. But when it comes to ants, assassin bugs don't want to be noticed by ants. Yes, yes. no one wants to be noticed by ants. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, but they also can cover themselves in like dust and like hmm. which I, they describe as potentially being that chemical camouflage. So it's kind of the predator defense of cover yourself in dirt. Mm-hmm. And you won't be as noticeable. There were other lacewings, the split-footed lacewings and owl flies, which I've never Ooh. heard of. Them. These had debris carrying, but it was just kind of on the back, like a flat back. And they still had hairy structure seti that could tangle and grab the debris, but no fancy basket. They used everything from sand grains to pieces of vegetable matter to bark fibers. So like a ton of different junk pieces interesting and these are still in that cretaceous amber yes exactly they describe them having a thick mat of filamentous dorsal seti so a thick mat of hair on the back that just clings like velcro to this random stuff they did note that this might give a suggestion of where these insects were living though Mm -hmm. because today's members of these groups are not all debris carriers it is actually found in specific habitats tree dwelling members remain as they put it naked mm-hmm. and some of the ground dwelling ones as well but it's only ground and litter dwellers so living in the the forest floor leaves that carry stuff so it suggests that these larvae were probably ground litter dwellers and some of them are preserved alongside things like earwigs and scorpions which supports that kind of environment. Yeah, so these are examples of where we can use that camouflage to interpret where you were living. Yes. So the fact that we have a exoskeleton on the previous one might be its prey, so that mm-hmm. might give us an idea of who it was hunting. This gives us an idea of where it might have been living. And then sometimes it can give us information about the evolution. We've already mentioned assassin bugs and we found them in amber as well. These were often using vegetable matter as their trash to carry. And they actually noted the difference between morphotypes, that the larger larvae had flatter bodies and were using vegetable matter mainly, and a smaller, thinner variety was using a lot of dust and still some plant matter, but was more heavily dust-based than the previous. They know that this is actually not super common in today's groups, that today's nymphs of assassin bugs, some of them will gather debris on their backs, and it's, you know, dust and vegetable stuff and sucked out prey parts. They also were using those hairs, but it is not super common today and was thought previously to only be something that happened in, that came about in later groups. Mm. But these fossils showed us that it actually has shown up much earlier and potentially has been evolved in poten- and maybe lost multiple times in the group. Yeah. So you can also give us ideas about the evolution of this behavior in a group, especially when it differs from what we see today. 
You can also run into the classic situation with fossils where you have a thing. Was this camouflage? The one that I found that uh, uh, was very intriguing was ammonites. Mm -hmm. Ammonites, the shelled cephalopods. The spiral shell Mm -hmm. with their uh, tendrils, arms sticking out the front. They have a huge variety of shell shapes, some of which are ribbed. They have ridges around the, the whorl of their shell. Many of them also had what was called, again, tubercles, these branching, sticking off spikes and bumps and knobs. A lot of them also were like corkscrewy and odd patterns to the whorl. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have wondered, what was all that doing? Yep. Was it hydrodynamics? Did this let you move through the water better? Some is it them, just that you are just look interesting for display yes. purposes? Is it so that you are noticed by another of your species? Is it uh, structural? A lot of people suggest that maybe these ridges are for support in deep sea or high ocean pressure situations. But another point out that camouflage could be the answer for a lot of these. You have very disrupted shape with some of those tubercles and ridges. I found one interesting interpretation that the ridges on the world, so these rib-like structures around the curl of the shell, would have created a broken up outline. You know, so you have that. To it, but also would have ha- caused shading shadows all across the shell, which we don't have any evidence of pigmentation from any of the ammonites from what I found or from what they were saying in this paper, at least. But if they do have these mini shadows forming, it could have potentially given the effect of stripes. Right. It has those, those stripes and spots, but it's shadows. Exactly. That are on you. Which mm-hmm. could give you that disruptive pattern. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, they did note that they are typically ridged all the way around, so they likely wouldn't have been countershaded by the way these shadows work. Sure. They would have had a overall patterning, which is informative because that might mean it, they weren't living up where the sun was intense enough to need countershading. Hmm. That could indicate they were deeper down where breaking up the outline is useful, but there's not enough light to worry about countershading. I could also imagine sort of a bumpy, branchy appearance help being helpful for blending in with a reef. Absolutely. Or if you are surrounded by other ammonites, mm-hmm. could it have had like a zebra effect yes. where it's hard to tell how many where one ammonite ends and the other one begins? Yeah, there's a little too much noise to track the individuals or make sense of what you're seeing. Hmm. We also have evidence of some very classic camouflage today we have fish larvae that show similar camouflage to today's fish larvae there was a rafin fish i found a report on from the permo carboniferous so the border of the carboniferous and the permian that retained pigments and shows dark mottling so you're not solid covered but kind of blotchy along the back with two stripes down the sides and that this is similar to markings we see in some larvae today and falls well within the description of countershading so that they were likely living somewhere where they needed that and the modeling fits with breaking up their uh, uh, outline, you know, the disruptive coloration. Pretty classic. But we also have some that seem like they were using transparency. Oh. Some larvae from the Eocene retained their soft tissue and showed some dark coloration in the stains that matches with pigment. And the reason transparency is because you might be thinking, but you found pigment. How is that transparent? How do you, how do you tell that a yeah. fossil was transparent? Where it's located and the lack of pigment matches with transparency because we do have adult fish from this site. It's a site in Denmark that are fully pigmented. So 
it does seem that they had a lack of pigment and the pattern of where it is in the body matches a lot of transparent fish larvae today. Interesting. Because you can't get rid of pigment completely for a few reasons. You need it in the eyes for eyes to work. Sure. If you have transparent eyes, they can't catch light because the light's going to pass through. This is the biggest issue with invisibility powers in yes. comic books and stuff is if your <laughs> eyes are see-through, you can't see. That then light goes through them. Because you have to catch the light in your <laughs> eye for you to be able to see anything. So invisible uh, people should just be a pair of floating Yes. Flan- just, just disembodied eyeballs. <laughs> There's also a couple of spots in the body where a pigment is kind of concentrated. We're not 100% sure on what this pigment is doing. This is true of today's transparent fish as well. There's hypotheses about what they might be doing. It is noted that since it is counteracting the transparency, they probably have an important function, you know, that they need to be there for a reason, because otherwise, why wouldn't you get rid of those pigments outside the eyes? One area is the gut has pigment in it, which could be to hide whatever you're eating. Maybe it obscures the food that would be visible inside your gut and maybe particularly to screen if you're eating bioluminescent prey that you might need a cloaked stomach so that your prey doesn't glow inside you they also know that the gas bladder you know which is the thing fish use to control where they float in the water will often have some shielding of pigment and that this might be to chain to disguise the difference in refraction with the air inside the gas bladder Hmm. that that might give off a light signal differently and that some of the organs will have pigment related to them and that this could just be that now that you're transparent you're vulnerable to uv light inside and out and if your heart and stomach and vital organs are exposed to uv light you might take damage especially since you're a developing young fish so they might need some shielding and we see this similar thing in these fossil ones as today So whatever these pigments are doing, they've been doing it for quite some time in this group. But probably the most exciting examples we find just because, you know, it it is what it is. We do have dinosaurs. We do. We have dinosaurs. Camouflage dinosaurs. Yeah. We do find dinosaurs every now and then preserved well enough that they have their pigments. And a number of them have had patterns to the pigments that at least are suggestive of camouflage or that they could work as camouflage. Mm -hmm. Some examples like Anchiornis, which was a small four-winged dinosaur, late Jurassic China, had preserved impressions of the feathers with pigment traces, and they were able to see that the wing feathers were white and black tipped, and then the, what are called coverts, which cover the main, you know, flight feathers, even though this probably wasn't a fully flighted dinosaur, were also white and either gray or black tipped, but they were arranged in such a way that those gray and black tips made bars and kind of checker patterns. And so you had this disruptive broken up pattern on at least the fore and back wings, at least Mm -hmm. the wings that seem like a good fit for what they called arboreal crypsis of blending into the trees and breaking up the outline of the animal. There's another one called Diptrix, which is a another theropod dinosaur. So you're two legged. This one was early Cretaceous China and preserved its feathers they said the description i found said it was covered in black feathers with visible banding patterns on the tail feathers yeah they compared this to a lot of modern day predatory birds birds of prey that this could function twofold as display up close but camouflage at a distance oh interesting that it might have different effects at what distance you are to it so if i'm 
up front with my mate, it's a good display. Mm-hmm. But off distance in the tree branches, I'm not noticeable to a predator. Right. So that you you could have a dual effect going on. I did find one note that I didn't find the report on this to get more details of pigmented Maniraptorin eggs. That oh yeah, the eggs preserve pigment and seem like they might be camouflaged, yeah, which is something we see in birds today. Yep, you will have camouflaged eggs, and this correlates to open nests that they weren't burying the eggs. Yeah, so they were visible from above. You need to hide them, and that they likely were nesting similar to a lot of birds today that we see with camouflaged eggs. Yes, which is a whole other side of camouflage that we didn't get into in the first mm-hmm. half of not just camouflaging the body of the animal but camouflaging eggs or camouflaging a home mm-hmm. like a den all sorts of uses for yes. it i found those mentioned every now and then but i didn't find a lot of detail in a lot of those papers and mm-hmm. a lot of them seemed like <laughs> this is a thing that's been noted we there's not actually been a lot of research on this thing yeah. of like hiding your home yeah i also know there are animals that will hide poops where your poop looks like berries or something you know like looks like not poop so that maybe it's not as notable in your habitat Mm -hmm. so that you can hide other things than yourself yes (laughs) and it can get real complicated and weird real fast the two big examples though when it comes to dino camouflage is cynoceropteryx and psittacosaurus those are the two that i think of yep cynoceropteryx was a early cretaceous fossil from china it is found in multiple formations but also in the j-hole uh, biota yep. well, episode 152 it has feathers covering its body and pigment preserved analyzing the kind of pigments the, the kind of melanosomes the molecule that makes it up indicates a chestnut or reddish brown pigment for the darker sections there was a lot going on they had a striped tail which could very likely be for disruptive camouflage mm-hmm. and breaking up the outline it was also Definitely countershaded with a dark top portion and a light underbelly for the main body, at least. It also has kind of a bandit mask around the face. Yeah. Now, this is less clear. This, this is less well understood as to what that serves for animals that have it. Because lots of raccoons and other animals have that dark patterning around the eyes. And we aren't for sure on what benefit it's giving. It could be anti-glare. You right. know, the light hitting that doesn't bounce up in your eyes as much so you can see better on a sunny day. Right, like putting mud under your eyes. Yes. There's a reason that, you know, uh, athletes and people that are out in the sun will do that because it does help reduce glare. Mm -hmm. It could be to disguise the eyes. Yeah. Like Uh, I'm thinking like an orca. Yes. Where you look at an orca and it looks like it has a giant white eye, but actually the eye is the little thing in there. So it might be to just keep, help make it hard for people to see where your eyes are. It could be for other things. Yeah, right, right. For for (laughs) organisms to see, for animals to see. Uh, it could be hard for, it could be to make it difficult to see where the eyes are looking. Yes. Uh, because a lot of animals are very good at knowing when they're being perceived by tracking eye lines. Absolutely. Try, I used to do this in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would walk up to squirrels without looking at them. Mm-hmm. I would see where it is and then walk in that direction while looking in another direction. And my very sort of undocumented, unscientific uh, results where you get a lot closer to a squirrel if it can tell you're not looking at it. Uh, one of the papers I was reading, <laughs> they had a moment like that. They were like, and just to give my own personal story as the one who's writing this review right now, 
I do bird watching and birds are really good at knowing when you're watching them. Yes. Because they can tell when they've been noticed because they see your eyes looking at them. Yes. So it could be to hide that so you can. It's the, the sunglasses. Yeah, but I was going to say. So it's, no one can tell what I'm looking no at. No one can tell where I'm looking. So it's hard to know exactly what benefit, you know, Sinoceroptrix was using these for. But we definitely have some obvious signs of camouflage or effective camouflage that could have been there. Psittacosaurus, which is also J-hole biota, is a ceratopsian, an early ceratopsian cousin. So no horns, no frill, probably could have walked on its back legs a little bit. A lot less triceratops than protoceratops in many ways. Mm -hmm. Super well-preserved pigments. There is that one famous specimen that it preserves pigments over the whole body. In the skin this time, so not feathers, but skin... We see some similarities. It is also countershaded mm-hmm. with a light underbelly and tail and a darker back. They did note some differences of like, the chest is darker colored. So it's not countershaded all the way across. There's also some disruptive camouflage that the back is mottled. So it's not just a solid color. There's some blotchiness to it. It also has fine spots down portions of the tail where there was also a set of quills that which could also break up the outline depending mm-hmm. on... Uh, if that would give away... I don't know how distinctive that would be for predators back then. Yeah. Would quills be like, nope, that's a Psittacosaurus, or would it be... Or is it like, oh, a bunch of ferns. bunch of fern, yeah, plants. It also had some weird patterning that could be camouflage, but also might have other purposes. There were stripes on the inside of the hind legs. Yeah. This could be... You know, stripes are disruptive. They're good for camouflage. Though it's been noted that there's also support for stripes helping to avoid biting flies. Yes. Uh, this has been noted in zebras and uh, other horses that have stripes mm-hmm. and that there seems to be something about the visual effect, the optical illusion that stripes cause that apparently deters flies. Uh, I don't know that we understand the exact mechanics of yeah, what's going I, on there. I sure don't. Mm-mm. But it could but, be. But the inside of your legs seems like a place that you'd want to not be bit. Especially since evidently Psittacosaurus's legs was different. The inside of its leg was scaleless. The outside was scaled, mm. so it would have been a more sensitive area for biting insects. Yeah. I wonder if it could also have been for some sort of display. Yeah. Would you like lift your leg up? Yes. In, in a little like the flat lizard courtship display. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Turn themselves sideways. <laughs> it also has some other coloration, like darker areas on the chin and around the cheekbones, you know, ish, and some er- other areas of the face in front of the eyes. It kind of has a mask going on, but not quite as bandit masky as Sinoceropteryx. The exciting thing with these two is their counter shading is different. Yeah. It is notably different. They're both found in the J-hole biota. So they are both in the same assemblage, but they have different counter shading going on. Sinoceropteryx has a sharp transition. It goes from light to dark in a hard line. Right. More like what you were describing with great white sharks yes. before. And it is high up on the body. Yeah. So it sounds more like uh, if you think of like antelopes. Yeah. They often have that kind of pattern. While Psittacosaurus has a more gradual transition from the back to the belly, where the color kind of just gradiates from light from dark to light. This is informative because, as you made the example with antelope, in modern day ungulates, it has been noticed that they correlate with their habitat what kind of countershading they have. We mentioned this a bit earlier, but specifically in open habitats and nearer the equator where you're going to be getting more direct sunlight and often directly above you sunlight, this will cause a much 
harsher shadow. And so they will have a more distinct break between the light and the dark. And it will be higher up on the body because you're getting sunlight from right above. In closed habitats, so like forests and stuff, and at higher latitudes, you'll be getting more angular light or diffused light where the light has been bouncing off of stuff and you're getting it from multiple angles. The animals here will often show a smoother transition. So we can infer the, from that that Psittacosaurus was adapted for a closed forested habitat. Which also fits with that modeling mm -hmm. splotchy pattern. Of the dappling of the, light. The dappling of light through the trees, which we often see in animals today. This is supported by a lot of the paleobotanical evidence of the J-hole biota. Yep, the surrounding plants. Yep. There's tons of evidence that it was a forested, a coniferous forest. Cynoceropteryx shading matches with a open environment, but they did note the ring tail is a bit of a curveball. Yeah. Because mammals with ring tails today are correlated with closed, so forested, and up in the trees lifestyle. Right, like a lemur. And often nocturnal. So like hmm. all those together don't quite fit with the open, at least, you know, the, the up in the trees and closed habitat don't fit with an open habitat. So yeah. maybe it was doing different things in both or moving. The fact that both of these are found in the same basin same formation could mean that they were sticking to particular areas and habitats yeah that these are two species that might have rarely encountered each other yes as they were even though they lived nearby they had different habitats and they also noted that this could explain in this formation and potentially other formations like it the presence of ecologically similar animals you know ones that seem like they probably would be doing similar roles in the environment but if they are specialized to different parts, you know, if we can find evidence like this, then they probably weren't competing. Mm -hmm. You know, so you get examples, you can get situations where we might be able to interpret what the kind of balance in the overall landscape was. Yeah, these are really cool examples where we have coloration information that tells us something about camouflage that lets us make interpretations about the shape of the ecosystems. Yep, that's very cool. But there are countershading examples in the fossil record that are confusing, or at least very different than today. Borealopelta is the famous mummified ankylosaur. This is a notosaur, so a member of the ankylosaurs that was preserved so well it's often called mummified. It has the, the 3D shape preserved of yeah, all its osteoderms. It looks like a gargoyle. Yes. Like a statue uh, from Canada. Utterly awesome. Yep. Canada, Cretaceous. And shows evidence of countershading. It has a darker back and a lighter underside. This is weird because Borealopelta was probably like 1.3 tons. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot bigger than most countershaded animals we have today. Yeah, rhinos and yeah. wildebeests and stuff tend not to be countershaded today. Like you mentioned with young of animals tend to be more heavily camouflaged, we see that Bigger animals tend to lose countershading, likely because they're not needing to hide the same reason, because they can defend themselves now. Right. Or it could also just be that it it doesn't work. It's not as effective You're at that so size. You're so big that at that size, it doesn't matter what color you are, you're going to get spotted. Though some conflicting evidence of that, we do have big animals. Giraffes are countershaded. This is true. And they are the biggest countershaded animal on yeah. land today. Uh, you think that a giraffe, that, what's the point? Yes. You're a giraffe. But if it is working for camouflage, mm -hmm. evidently works. And if Borealopelta is countershaded for camouflage, potentially it's working at that size. 
which indicates that the predator-prey situation back then was very different. Yeah, it could be that if this is in fact functioning to protect from being detected by predators, it could be that there were predators worth being worried about back then. Yeah. Which, it, of course, we, we know there yes. were. Apex large theropods potentially could be putting different predatory pressures on dinosaurs back then to result in a different pattern of camouflage than we see in animals today because there's nothing big enough to threaten an elephant to cause countershading to need to be evolved. Mm -hmm. This, though, I think is a good time to bring up that there are some people who have questioned if we overemphasize countershading. Yeah. That I found two different papers, one which was basically saying, how useful is it really? And they made the point that in their review, none of the examples they looked at were explained better by camouflage than ju by just UV protection or blending into different backgrounds. Right. That, that it may help with the shading, but that might not actually be a primary effect. Yes. I found one old paper, this is like 1988, that was called Countershading, Universally Deceptive or Deceptively Common? <laughs> or Deceptively Universal. So there have been those who are like, maybe it's not. Maybe we point at it too often as camouflage. Right. Uh, which is always a thing we have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, and this comes up a lot in paleontology where we will find an interesting structure and come up with a more or less reasonable interpretation for what that structure might have been doing. But then if we get really hooked on that, yes, we might be emphasizing it more than it actually uh, deserves. Now, once again, just to put things in perspective, I only came across these two papers. Sure. That were people kind of questioning countershading as a, a common trend. Most other reports of camouflage included it in their list of examples of camouflage. Mm -hmm. So it's not that this is a, a heavily questioned thing, but there are some who have pointed, you know, raised a finger just to, to consider. One of the polite fingers. Yes. <laughs> now, while looking at camouflage, it often questions of its evolution and the, you know, the broader effects of it come up. Because it is a very complicated thing quite often. You have those plant mimicking and, and masquerading insects that are so accurate. Right. When we, if we think about the evolution of camouflage, some of it, sometimes it's extremely easy to imagine how did this happen. Uh, yes. Yeah. You had a bunch of animals. They had a variety of coloration. Some of them were browner. Yes. And they happened to blend in because they lived in a brown environment. And, then <laughs> and they that, were found last. <laughs> and they were found last and thus had more babies. Yes. And so over time, there was just a selective pressure that favored being more and more brown. Splotchy patterns. It's very sort of intuitive to imagine how that kind of thing can come about. Yes. But yeah, then there are some examples that are rather dramatic. And a lot of times what uh, the, a lot of the research I found would be looking at is how responsive is camouflage to change because mm -hmm. if given the time it makes sense that you know you can just continually inch closer and closer to perfect camouflage but if the situation changes if the habitat shifts if you know the climate shifts and if your predators change if your predators change if the prey you're trying to hide from change if there's a sudden shift how quickly can your camouflage adjust interesting so a lot of the research that i found was looking at it from that point of view of how how flexible is this camouflage and there were some interesting findings uh, the the 
famous, famous example of that is the peppered moth. The famous example. That, that's the camouflage one. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure people have been like, why have they not even mentioned? How have you not mentioned peppered moths? This one is is the very iconic situation where peppered moths were a group of moths in Europe that blended in with the speckled white bark of uh, some of the, I can't remember which tree it was. Yeah, I don't uh, remember. But the local trees. Right. Uh, this is also modern, by the way. Yes, yeah. The very uh, just because we we've been talking a lot about fossils. Yes, stuff. exactly. Peppered moths. This is this is a modern. Yeah. A lot of these these studies <laughs> I'm about to talk about are recent because now we're studying the evolution of it because yes. we don't have enough examples in the fossil record to. F- do long-term evolutionary studies of it because mm-hmm. the pigment isn't consistent enough, but we can study genetics and phenomena today. They blended in by sitting on the bark and having a very, very similar pattern. Yeah. Well-matched. They were sort of light, light, light with speckles. Yes. Every now and then you would get color morphs that were darker colored. And that was just a, a thing that happened with the way their genetics work. It just happened every now and then. Then the industrial revolution kicked in. We pumped out Oh, so much smoke and soot. Yep. And by we, of course, we mean Europeans. Yes. Gross Europeans. Yep, yep. We just polluted <laughs> so heavily that we sooted the trees. Yep. And now the white moths stood out and the dark, rare morphs blended in. And very quickly, the population shifted where the white became the rare occurring color and the dark colored moths became the common occurring color morph. And the population reversed its proportions, basically. And then when we cleaned things up and we stopped pumping out so much soot and ash, it went back. Yep. So they responded quite quickly to a dramatic change to their environment that utterly undermined their more common camouflage technique. And this has been looked at in a number of groups in a number of ways. I found examples talking about uh, gerbils, which are... uh, Dry, arid habitat rodents, uh, same group that includes our pet store gerbils, but they are in the wild. They are found out in deserts very often. And their coat color often matches the general background color of whatever environment they're found in within the same genus. So these are not majorly different lineages. These are very closely related. And they were able to note that this seems many of these colors seem to have been evolved and lost numerous times, which suggests that it's a fairly malleable and easy trait to change and change and adjust through evolution within this group. So a lot of camouflage is pretty flexible. It can't be changed in a lifetime. Sure, sure. Oh yeah, if you're not an octopus. If you're not an octopus. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get to just change it on a whim. But even a lot of the really specific camouflages that you think of actually have been shown to be fairly flexible which makes sense because your environments environments are always changing. Mm-hmm. And that's been the case since animals have been camouflaging. So if camouflage wasn't something that could be adjusted, it probably wouldn't last for very long within a lineage. Well, and camouflage is also, in so many cases, extremely important. Yes. You know, the difference between being noticed and not being noticed can be extremely influential on the trajectory of the life of an individual organism. Precisely. I also, in all of this, came across my new favorite example of seemingly cool and fast adaptation for camouflage, and it's a plant, which I need you to say because I couldn't find the common name for this. I'm going to say it. Here we go. I'm going to make Allie happy. 
Fritillaria Delavei. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, David's going to say that one because <laughs> this is an herb used in very commonly in traditional Chinese medicine. And it is found in the in alpine environments in the Hungduan Mountains. These are interesting plants. They have leaves only when they're younger. Huh. Yep. All right. <laughs> and they produce a single flower per year after they're five years old. Huh. So once they mature, they'll produce one flower a year. Okay. Yep. They flower in summer, said June, and then they die away in winter, typically around October, each year. The leaves that they have when they're younger vary in their color among different populations, and they range from green to brown and gray. Green, you know, being a normal leaf color, but also sticks out a bit more in the the mountainous habitats they're in, and the browns and grays tend to blend in a bit better almost resembling the same color as the rocks around them, which has been noticed as potential camouflage of This is another great matching. example of that conflict. Yes. Of like leaves are green when they're doing a good job photosynthesizing. Yeah. So if your leaves aren't green, you're compromising your ability to get food. It has been suggested that might be why we don't see as extreme camouflage in plants because you might be hindering your effectiveness Yes. To match the background. Now, the interesting thing about this situation, the plant, is that there's no natural enemies that the researchers have noticed to cause this camouflage other than humans harvesting it as an herb. Hmm. And in fact, the degree of camouflage, how well they match their background, is correlated with the intensity of harvesting areas. The areas where it is more harvested, it matches the background better. So this is a species of plant that is hiding from us. Yes! They did a human experiment, what they called a human search experiment. They noted that the time it took for the searchers to find the plants was greatly influenced by the target's concealment. That, yeah, they are concealing from us well. We <laughs> tested it by sending people out. That's really cool because it's like the you'll do these activities with kids to teach about, you know, camouflage and natural selection where you do something like, all right, here's a background. Here's a bunch of candy. Yeah. Grab as much as you can. And then we'll we'll record which colors got grabbed most. And then, you know, it's, it's a lesson about natural selection and camouflage and stuff. This is that. But in like an actual study. Yes. <laughs> this happened because of us in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> so like this is a great example of how groups camouflage can change relatively quickly because as we were saying it is often a direct elimination of the less optimal option i'm going to eat the one i do see yes and i'm not going to catch the one i don't see yeah it, it often isn't and it, obviously there's variations yes but in many cases this isn't a matter of like yeah if you camouflaged well versus if you didn't you have slightly more offspring yep and you slightly influence. In many cases, it's if your camouflage wasn't good, you're gone. You, you got etted. You are removed. And in many of these examples, it and you know, there's tons of examples of camouflage. So I'm sure there are situations where this has happened and surely has to have happened. But often it's that there is natural color variation within the species. And depending on the scenario, different options of that coloration get selected for and against. It's not that you have a plant that's 
all green, all of them. Mm-hmm. And then they start getting hunted and some of them go, whoa, we got to turn brown. Time to turn a different color. We need to be gray right now. There probably were already gray ones. They just may not have been as common. Right, like the moths. Like the moths. So that's one of the reasons you can see evolution. Uh, you can see camouflage flip on a dime seemingly mm-hmm. because the camouflage was already there it just wasn't the common one yet yeah it does make me wonder if we were able to look at similar patterns with more extreme versions of camouflage yes yes. like those sort of katie dids the leaf masqueraders and such because that is obviously a deeper investment into the camouflage heavily but insects also tend to be very variable and they tend to evolve very quickly so I do wonder how quickly you would see if, like, the composition of your forest changed. Yep, yep. Would insects like that be able to respond relatively quickly? And I didn't come across anything like that while I was looking, but yeah. I'm sure it, 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 those questions have been asked because, yeah, the, the plant masquerading insects are intense. Yeah, well, and some of them are real, like, stick insects. Seems like a great strategy because then it kind of doesn't matter what the plants are. Yeah. So there's always going to be sticks. Most plants have (laughs) some form of a stick. And speaking of stick insects, I found some cool research on cascading effects of camouflage. The stick insect that is found in Southern California here in the U.S., there's a specific species that has different color morphs Mm -hmm. because they are mainly found on two different shrub species. And the two different shrubs have different kinds of leaves. One has needle-like leaves. The other one has more broad oval-shaped leaves. And this has led to two morphs of the stick insects with a number of differences. But the one they said that is the most notable is that the ones that live on the more needle-leafed shrubs have a stripe, a white stripe down the back. And then the ones that live on the oval-shaped leaves are just green. And so they've been known as the striped and green morphs. But this is still the same species, so they can still interbreed. And in areas where the two shrubs are found together and the populations overlap and can interbreed, they result in less well-camouflaged young, (gasps) what they called maladapted camouflage. This has an effect on the overall population in those areas because it is reduced. The population shrinks because predation increases because they're not hiding on either plant as well as they were in separated, isolated populations. This goes on to affect the other insects in their environment. The co-occurring arthropod community, as they put it, experiences also increased predation because they have made a better hunting ground for the birds. So the birds are there now. So they're hunting other insects as well. This then decreases overall feeding on the plants by all those insects that have now been eaten. So in that situation where the their camouflage shifts, it has a cascading effect all the way to a, affecting how, how much herbivory there is going on on these plants. Wow. It's crazy. So that's another thing that is important to remember with camouflage is if the camouflage shifts, it is also going to affect who you were hiding from because now they can find you. Right. Not only does the habitat affect camouflage, but how you're camouflaging will affect your ecosystem. Yes. And with that... I think we can wrap up this discussion on camouflage. There are too many cool... This is one of those ones where I... My heart hurts on a few examples that we just don't have the time to go into detail on. As with many of these episodes, dear listeners, 
Let us know your yes. favorite examples of camouflage. Please, please, please. There'll be lots of pictures in the blog post, so check that out to see a lot of these cool examples of disguise and blending in. But for now, we'll put this discussion to rest and we'll move toward the end of the episode. But before that, we have one last thing, which is our patron question. Our patrons at certain levels can submit questions to us, which we will answer at the end of the episodes here on the podcast. And today's question is from... Turkani, who asks, The cephalopods of the Ordovician were successful, according to a documentary I saw. What would you speculate their intelligence would be compared to modern-day cephalopods? If extinctions had not occurred, would there have been possible evolutionary pressures toward larger brains or eventual sentience? Good question. And fitting, since we talked about cephalopods a good bit this episode. Mm-hmm. The cephalopods of the past, There's there were n- numerous groups, many of which were shelled. You know, so yeah, they still so. had an external shell like the Nautilus today. Yeah, the, the nautiloids of the Ordovician often had those long yeah, shells, yep. sometimes various curling shapes. Given that bit of information, it is it is hard to tell... You know, what their brains were doing because we don't have them. And even if we did, that wouldn't necessarily tell us what their behavior would be. Right. But Nautilus today is not the problem solver that octopus and cuttlefish are. Yeah. They do not show the same problem solving and curiosity and extremely complex behavior that we see in cuttlefish and octopus. Uh, A lot of squids also don't show they are also very just small fish-like in their behaviors. So not all cephalopods are problem solvers, you know, quote-unquote, quote to our way of interpreting it, highly intelligent. Right. Now, obviously, there can be lots of variation, mm-hmm. but just by comparing them to their similar relatives today, we wouldn't necessarily have a particular reason to expect them to be unusually intelligent. Yeah. They might have been. Yes, there definitely uh, could, and you know, there could be... A species that was, un, right. you know, like the crows of those mm-hmm. those early uh, shelled cephalopods. But in general, if we were just going by today's pattern, probably not in the famous ways that we see our groups today. Yeah. Also, it's an important point that they were very successful, but you don't need to be, quote, highly intelligent to be a successful group of organisms. Yeah. Squid today are not octopus-like mm-hmm. in their habits. But squid are clearly very successful, arguably more successful than octopus and cephalopods. Oh, yeah. And nautilus combined. Yes, no. They are often the apex predator in many of the environments they're found and in. And they're super diverse and they're they're super widespread. So intelligence can help mm-hmm. being, being cognitively impressive or having those sort of problem-solving skills. But it's not something that is necessarily a driving benefit of many or even most groups of animals and there have been we don't know why octopus got as intelligent as they are yeah we don't know it but i have seen people point out that they are the most soft-bodied of all cephalopods today mm-hmm. and cuttlefish also they do have their cuddle bone but they don't have any external protection and if you are more vulnerable there is a benefit if you are able to be clever enough to exploit your e- ecosystem if you have a hard shell, you don't necessarily need to be clever to be safe. <laughs> so there could be some sort of trade-off there. Yep. But of course, it's very difficult to say for sure. Very complex. Right. As far as eventual sentience, 
Uh, probably not, because uh, none of the cephalopods have done it in the time since then. Yes. They've had about 500 million years to get that going. Yeah, no, that, that is one of those groups where, you know, <laughs> there's definitely members from back then that didn't persist. But cephalopods have been doing pretty well in the oceans for quite some time. Yeah. And we've gotten to octopus, but they have not yet started making tools. You know, they will right. use stuff, but they don't craft and we talked about this actually in the end of the year Q&A mm-hmm. a little bit. There's no reason to suspect that any given lineage of organism is headed towards human-like advanced intelligence. We only know of one species that's ever done that, and it's ours. Yes. That might be a one-off. That That's not something that seems to be an inevitability in evolution. It might just be a thing we happened to do. It's also been noted that octopus lack a lot of the teamwork behaviors that would benefit even more extreme you know Mm -hmm. and complex behaviors that we typically associate with social behaviors they are very anti-social and short-lived so that they can't have family relations of uh, parents giving information to offspring Mm -hmm. so they might be kind of trapped in their biology and how similar to us they even could be behaviorally so yeah good question and a, f- a very fun topic to speculate on. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Turkani. And as always, thanks to all of our patrons. Yeah, thanks to all of you who are supporting us. Thank you to you who have requested this episode. We had a lot of fun discussing it. Like I said, check out the blog. The link's down in the description to see pictures and links to all of that. We are now here in the new year. And as a reminder, that means at the end of this month, we'll be having our anniversary live stream for seven years of the podcast. On the 28th at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, our country. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our top tier supporters, Sarah May, Daniel the Bug Lover, Robert Mart, and Kit Kat Kotcha. And there's a new name in there. There is. That's uh, very exciting. Our collection grows. Thank you to all of our patrons and our supporters and our requesters and our listeners. That means you yeah. listening right now. We, we see you. Welcome to 2024. Here's to a great year of the podcast. You know, finally. Uh, finally, uh, a good one. Uh, finally, a good year. This is the one where we turn it all around. <laughs> <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. And I'm going to just fade into the background like Homer Simpson into the hedges. I get it. Yeah. I get what you did Just Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>